Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm very excited about this episode of the Paranormal Sun because I've got a very special guest. I had a great interview with Nate Odd, who is the chapter president for the Paranormal Sun in Pennsylvania, and we really had a great conversation. We talked for over three hours, folks, and the time just flew by. We covered over 14 different subjects from the state of Pennsylvania, and we didn't even get through the whole show. So I had about 28 to 30 total. So with any luck, we'll be able to wrangle Nate back into the studio in future. Uh, Nate did an excellent job. It was his first real segment on a podcast. And his voice got a bit crackly at the end, but uh, if anyone can uh, sympathize, definitely JT can, because I've blown my voice out more than once. It is definitely a labor of love to sit on the mic for multiple hours. So Nate, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was an awesome conversation, man. I really appreciate it, especially with it being on a Sunday evening and you having work the next day. Now, in saying that, folks, I always, when I go to deal with myths and legends from some of these places, I always reach out to the chapter presidents. And at any time, this is an open mic invitation to any of the chapter presidents and the field correspondents. If you ever want to come on the program, you're always welcome at any time. No doubt about that. Now, one other thing I just wanted to cover over very briefly. Thank you so much for the people who checked up on me when we had the earthquakes here in New Zealand in the last, uh, I think it was last week. Uh, we're very fortunate. In in this country, we're in one of the more stable regions, and these earthquakes were quite a ways away. Now, of course, it could have caused us issues, but when you're talking about earthquakes in the 7 and 8 magnitude range, I do appreciate it that you take the time to check in. So thank you again, folks, from the bottom of my heart for those people who did check in. And I know, like I say, I know what it's like. I checked in on Mark, who's the chapter president in Japan, as soon as I heard about the big quake in Japan. But he said the same thing, basically. I'm fine, JT. We're out in the middle of nowhere, so we're perfectly safe. I hope for those of you who did celebrate St. Patrick's Day, you had a great one. For those of you who aren't Irish or don't celebrate, I hope you still had a marvelous day. I really enjoyed myself. I had uh, just some nice relaxing time, listened to a good bit of traditional Irish music, and in fact I've been listening to a good bit of it all this week. I picked up a six-pack of Guinness. It's not very cheap here because it's all bottled overseas in Ireland and imported, so we don't have a local bottling plant, so it's quite expensive in New Zealand. But I allowed myself one small luxury to be able to get some of that Guinness because I love it. I mean, just go and look at my Facebook name. So again, folks, uh, just we're going to keep it brief tonight. We're not going to go into much. We're not going to get into the news of the dam because Nate and I's conversation was A, so, so excellent, and B, so long that I don't want to end up giving you a three and a half hour episode by the time I get done doing the news of the damned. Now, I've got the very first episode of bonus content up for the Patreon subscribers and the people who have supported the show financially, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm still trying to work out some of the kinks as far as working it through Patreon, but in the meanwhile, I've got a private feed on YouTube where you can find the episode. 
And if you have supported and you haven't got a link sent to you, get a hold of me and I'll make sure that you do get that. It was basically the Celtic Sun part two, so I did a bit more of a uh, Irish theme for St. Patrick's Day, another episode, and I quite enjoyed doing that, so thank you for allowing me to do that. To everyone out there listening to my voice all over the world, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I couldn't do it without you. All the kind things that I get told, all the stories that people tell me about how much they appreciate my research and the hard work that I go through, it, it really does make it worth it, and I'm forever appreciative for your kind words. Thank you very much. To Stone over at the Xander and Stone podcast, Stone's been doing a lot more of the social media in the last few weeks because Xander's just having a bit of a break. Stone, thanks for all the kind words and all the positivity that you've sent my way. I really do appreciate it. And you two do a great program yourself. And folks, there is a $100 Amazon gift card giveaway over there at the Xander and Stone podcast right now. So, Make sure you go over there and check that out. I mean, they got great content anyway, but if you've got a chance to win a prize as well, you might as well go over there and check it out. Am I right? So again, folks, if I've forgotten anyone or I've left anything off, trust me, it's not intentional. I just want to keep this nice and tight and short to be able to get into the excellent interview I had with Nate. Now, I do have a couple notes I just wanted to say up front. Nate was saying that he believed that... A large part of the Silence of the Lambs jail scene where Hannibal was in the hospital was filmed at the Allegheny Jail, and that is 100% correct. So, Nate, I just went online and did a little bit of sleuthing before this episode, and I found that the Victorian home in Periopolis, used as Buffalo Bill's home in the film, went up for sale in August of 2015 for $300,000. The home sat on the market for nearly a year before finally selling for only 195000 so they got about a third of the cost off. And then again here, they've just got a little note here that says, For the interiors of the Buffalo State Forensic Hospital, the old Allegheny County Jail was used. Now folks, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. There's a little bit for everyone. We got everything from ghosts to all kinds of great urban legends. And like I say, we've I've, so this is the second show I've done on Pennsylvania, and I've got at least two more to go. Uh, if I can be fortunate and get Nate back on for a second show, we've got that to finish up, and I've still got enough material already, already gathered to do another solo show on Pennsylvania, so we've got plenty to go through. Aside from that, folks, kick back, relax, and enjoy. Next week, we'll be back to, to a UFO topic because I've been so uh, into doing these different uh, subjects about Pennsylvania, and then I had a CIA show. But next week, we'll definitely have a UFO show for you. So with that, again, like I say, go and get yourself a nice drink. Go and get yourself a nice warm drink or a nice cold drink, whatever the weather may be, and enjoy. And let us know how what you think about the episode. Let us know if you enjoy it, and let us know if you'd like to hear more. And again, folks, if you want to support the show, one of the best ways that you can is just to tell others. Tell them, hey, look, uh, I've stumbled across this podcast. I think it's pretty good. I think JT's only semi-crazy, so why don't you go and check it out? So again, folks, without further ado, thank you so much. And again, massive shout-out to Nate. Thanks, man. Thanks for being a trooper and bearing through that three-hour-long interview to have this excellent episode for everyone. 
So folks, everyone enjoy, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. The views and opinions expressed by guests on the Paranormal Sun are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoint or the position of JT, the Paranormal Sun, or Tower Studios New Zealand. Well, folks, we've got a special guest on this episode of the Paranormal Sun, and it's something I've really been looking forward to, as I say. So many of you will know that uh, we've got chapter presidents and field correspondents for different states and countries in the world. And the reason I do that is twofold. Number one, I love to reward people who support me and have got positive things to say about the program. And second, I really like to have the ability to draw on those other people's knowledge. And we're really, really fortunate on this episode to welcome Nate, who is our field correspondent and chapter president from the state of Pennsylvania. So what we're going to do, folks, is very briefly here, I'm going to let Nate get in and tell you a bit about what he does and his background and some of his experiences. And then what we're going to do is we'll go through, I'll cover over each kind of subject and some of the stuff I found interesting on the Internet, and then we'll let Nate give you a little bit of a background on that. So, Nate, welcome to the Paranormal Sun. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about Nate Odd and your urban explorations and all of the things that uh, you enjoy about the state of Pennsylvania. Sure, JT. Thanks again for having me on the show. I'm definitely excited to talk to you, especially about Pennsylvania, my home state. Um, this is really my first uh, podcasting appearance, so... Wow. Bear with me. Um, <laughs> but crazy. basically what happened is um, I've always kind of had a fascination for things that go bump in the night and just odd legends growing up. You know, you hear those those tales by the campfire, especially gl- growing up in the Appalachians. Um, we went to Boy Scout camp. We had these little bonfires with our friends all the time. There wasn't a whole lot to do that out in the country. So it was something that we talked about. Um, and growing up, I've lived in the central part of Pennsylvania in Clearfield County. Um, then I moved up to Crawford County, which is near Erie. And then I went after college, I came down here to Pittsburgh. So I've been in Southern Pennsylvania, but, um, I really just in the past year, the, the end of July of 2020, I started my Instagram page, which you mentioned is at Nate underscore odd. Um, essentially it's, it's kind of all over the place, but it's mostly urban exploration. So what that means is going to abandoned locations. So places that were once a business or a home and for whatever reason they were left to time and, and left to rot and be abandoned and no one currently lives or takes care of those locations so those locations just kind of being weird places like you see in movies like the the witch's house or the big mansion with the sprawling gates and the weeds um they build stories in in local lore um so that kind of always always interests me and so urban exploration kind of goes hand in hand with those local legends and i've always been fascinated by the the ghost stories and uh, cryptozoology, cryptozoology and everything like that as far as Pennsylvania goes. Well, man, I'll, I'll tell you what. When I started, I know Pennsylvania is a big state, and obviously it's one of the original 13 colonies, so there have been settlers there for a long time. But when I started digging into the stories from Pennsylvania, I started out 
think I, I kind of wanted to do two episodes like I did for Illinois. And I very quickly worked out. I mean, without a lot of work, I found like 60 subjects pretty easily. And right. so, yeah, man, it's I mean, it's pretty crazy how much there is out there. And and folks, just to give you an idea, I mean, for, for this episode with Nate, I've got about 20 pages of script. OK, and I haven't even touched things like Gettysburg or Kecksburg. I mean, some of the other things that you might go, well, why haven't you covered that? I left them off just because most of that stuff is pretty well covered and you can hear about it elsewhere. And on top mm -hmm. of that, I mean, we're we're already so I've, this is going to be the second show in Pennsylvania. And I've got a third show that I had so much left over from the first show I did that I'm actually going to have another solo show on it. And I and again, easily, I could probably go back without a lot of work and find enough for another couple of shows. I mean, it the the width and breadth of kind of the myths and legends and stories out of Pennsylvania, man, they're they're pretty full on. And just like with Illinois, I mean, I lived in Illinois and uh, I lived there for five years and went to school. And there was stuff within a hour long car ride that I'd never even heard of when I went through and did the research. So it just goes to show that wherever we are in the world, whether it's in the U.S. or overseas, there's always something just up the road that you may not know about or you may not have heard of. And, uh, man, Pennsylvania has got it all, though. I'll tell you that, Nate. You've got you've really got some awesome stories. Yeah, we've got, uh, I think, a lot of people with a lot of time on their hands, but <laughs> that might be part of it. But also, it's just kind of a heavily wooded state. That's where the name of the state comes from is Penn's Woods. Right. Um, and, you know, it, we're mostly woods. It's kind of like the, the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, especially, you know, you have Philadelphia on one side on the eastern side and Pittsburgh on the western side. Those are really the major cities, but everywhere in between, it's, it's woods and hills. Yeah, and I think per personally, it's just like anything. Most people, when we hear about a state or a country, we'll kind of think of those cities because that's what we might have heard on the news or on TV or in a TV show. And it's like California. I mean, people have got this idea that California is like basically one big city. And there are air. I mean, you can drive from San Diego to L.A., and I've been gone quite a while, and you will find very little in between that's not urban. But I'll tell you what, now, man, it's just like there's there's so much of that state. There's the eastern part that's all desert, and you've got Death Valley and Borrego and all that. And then you've got, obviously, northern California with the redwood forests and everything else. And again, I, I think it's just one of those things where if we don't live there and we don't kind of travel through those areas, people have just got this idea. Like you say, they just think of Philadelphia and they think of Pittsburgh. And it's just like in the first solo episode I did, I, I always try and have something from those cities. But the vast majority is more of the, well, maybe you've heard of things like the Phantom Bus in Philadelphia, but I highly doubt you've heard of something like the Trotterkopf in the Pennsylvania Dutch area or something. Now you might have Nate, but I mean people in general. So right. that, you you know, I mean you've you've listened to the show before. That's always kind of the theme of the show. It's like, hey, it's great that people talk about things like Roswell or the Bigfoot, but have you heard of this? And I always try and do a a good bit of covering those subjects that it's not something that one person saw one time and you might be able to find one sentence on, but at the same time it's not something that everyone in their brother has done a podcast and a movie on um, because again there's very little to add there it's just me telling it in a different way so and, exactly and and that's it i mean when when we so folks 
just so you know kind of what went on, I kind of compiled a list and I sent it to Nate and we kind of sent it back and forth. And then they added on some things. And, and some of these subjects, I mean, when I heard them just reading them, you're like, wow, that that's pretty cool. I want to know more about that. So, if, for example, like there's one about Indian rock, uh, stone-faced giants of the North Country Woods, things like that, or the lost children of the Alleghenies. You hear things like that, folks. And I don't know about you, but me personally, that's where, like, like you were saying, Nate, I mean, my kind of, I want to know more about it and I want to know what goes bump in the night. It's like my antennas are fully on and they're going, tell me about that now. I, I want to know about it right now. And in fact, um, I use a program for the show that I use to keep all of the different subjects and I've actually added the app on my phone. So if I'm watching a TV program and a, a case comes up or something I hadn't heard of, I don't have to try and remember it. I can actually add it in so I don't forget about it later. Uh, because I've had it happen before, man, like I'll hear something and then two or three months goes by and there'll be a news article come out about it or something. I'll go, oh yeah, I was going to cover that. So it's, it's crazy how much there is all over. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even like growing up in the state, like you said, you don't know about it unless like there's tons of interesting books out there. Like there's a weird Pennsylvania yeah. and different legends and lore books of every county you can think of in Pennsylvania and some of those things you know you just hear word of mouth and just things that you you hear about driving around these small towns right no and, and that's it I mean it's it, it's pretty cool and one thing folks that I've found through doing this uh, is that you do have some of these legends that you could take it from Pennsylvania and plug it into a similar named location in Illinois and pretty much that urban legend in that sense is pretty much the same i mean like we've all heard of different gravity hills we've all heard of the ghostly hitchhiker we've all heard of the man with the hook like all of those stories a lot of those there seems to be a bit of similarity but some of these are definitely uh, i mean 100 percent pennsylvania and the first one i'm going to kick off on is actually one of those it's one that i haven't now again i haven't studied every state don't get me wrong but this is the first that I'd kind of heard a story like this. And again, I, I get that this might have just been one of those things that's kind of grown with time, but it's still an awesome story, and I found it quite interesting. And this one is about the pig lady of Candleton. And folks, what I always try to do with this, because I get that not everyone is familiar with states, so I'll tell you kind of what area of the state it is. So Candleton is in the kind of the western border and it's about mid-state, so it's about halfway up the state on the western border. And uh, this one is one of the more mysterious and macabre tales of the region. It centers around a young lady named Barbara Davidson. She was the daughter of Samuel and Cora McCaskey. Now, sometime in the flower of her youth, she married a young man whose name was Nathan Davidson. Like Barbara's father, he was a soldier in the American Revolution. And for the international listeners who don't know, that was in the 1770s and 1780s, who we know about. It is also known that he disappeared quite suddenly for reasons not known. Some folks say he died in a tragic accident and Barbara was forced back onto her parents' farm. That is all we really know. From there, a strange and bloody occurrence would take place. The tragic tale of Barbara Davidson has all the trappings of a well-crafted murder mystery novel except this whodunit will forever remain unsolved and cemented into Beaver County folklore. After the war, a young Davidson returned to live on the farm in the depreciation lands of Beaver County. 
This area, officially settled in 1795, would be called Cannelton, named after the cannel coal found there and later mined. A daughter of Samuel and Cora McCaskey, she was married briefly, and Thomas White, who's from uh, Duquesne University, and he's also an author of, as you were saying, Nate, so many of these kind of weird Pennsylvania books. He's mm -hmm. the author of Haunted Roads of Western Pennsylvania. He says not much is known about her marriage, just that basically she married this man, like I said, who fought in the Revolutionary War. So her husband either disappeared or died. Nobody's really quite sure. Uh, he said that she was, uh, she and her husband were supposedly well-liked by the neighbors. She tended to the animals and worked on the farm. During the summer of 1795, her parents left for Pittsburgh to purchase supplies and livestock. And they left her alone, and she was a teenager at the time. So she, they left her there to take care of the farm. Because again, folks, for those of you who haven't been around a farm, you can't just let animals and crops kind of do their own thing for several weeks at a time. Right. They're gone and that was a far trip. That oh, was a yeah. far trip to Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, I mean, it's one of those things where in modern life, we tend to forget, but back then you only had really two means of getting there, which was walking or riding a horse or, or taking a cart. And you might right. only kind of do 20 to 50 miles a day. So like you said, that'd be a week-long trip, easy. So um, they were gone a few days, and when they arrived back, they lived up a dirt road off of the main road, and it it went up to the front of the farmhouse, and they went up there, but strangely enough, she wasn't there to greet them. And back then at that time, generally you would hear the horse and carriage coming up the drive, and you'd go out to, to greet them. So it was really strange to her parents, and but everything seemed silent and strange around the homestead, and the only sounds they could hear were animals that they kept in the barn. There seemed to be no sign of their daughter anywhere. So they come back, and they can't find Barbara anywhere. They search and they search and alert the neighbors, who are all concerned, and they look around, and they can't find her. But after a day or two, they realize there's an odd smell coming from below the floorboards. Her parents are drawn to an outside crawl space and discover a horrific scene. They find Barbara's body shoved under the house, missing its head. So we've all heard all these stories about decapitated ghosts and that, and that's pretty horrific. Anytime you find a loved one dead, let alone, and then you know that they've been killed. So her killer and the head were never found. However, her headless spirit is rumored to haunt the area where her family's farm used to be, along the Cannelton Road and beyond. Over the next hundred years and beyond, various accounts of her ghost would surface. One night in the early 1800s, a man going on a dirt road in his wagon was greeted by an apparition of what appeared to be the figure of a young lady missing her head. Startled by the ghostly figure, the horses shook so violently they threw him off the wagon and ran from the figure, leaving the unknown man stranded for the rest of the night. As the sightings grew more and more, another particular tale of interest comes from a group of boys playing near a bridge in the area where they claim that a ghostly female figure with the head of a pig began to chase them down the road. They never played on the bridge again, I definitely wouldn't, or even <laughs> walked on it. And as it says in the 1950s, folks started claiming that a female apparition wearing the head of a pig was seen walking along the cemetery in which she was interred and also along some of the local country roads on certain nights. Long ago on a warm summer's evening, a man was said to be camping somewhere in the woods near Cannelton. One night he claimed something terrifying occurred that prevented him from talking about it for many years. While relaxing near his campfire, he saw something emerge from the fire itself. When it took its final form, it was that of a headless woman 
who began to speak to him. It only said one sentence, Tell them Reno. For some time afterwards, the mysterious man was unable to remember what the lady ghost had said to him. And again, I mean, I can fully understand that. I'd be freaked out. He was so swollen with fear for the rest of the night, he couldn't even move. When morning finally arrived, he packed up his things and was never seen again. However, after some time had passed, he related his gruesome tale to a stranger who wrote it down. Now, after some lengthy research, it was claimed that there was an Indian French fur trapper in the Beaver County who went by the name of Raynaud. Accordingly, he possessed a bad reputation and was a friend to no one. Now, could it be that her killer was this trapper and that she communicated it from beyond the grave? Now, that's an awesome ghost story, and we've all heard those kind of stories of someone from beyond the grave identifying their killer. Now, it, it's not known who that man was who was camping or if it's a made-up story. But as for that Indian, like I say, the, the Indian trapper, they definitely know that he existed. Uh, it's now preserved in the legends of the pig lady. Numerous persons have supposedly seen this ghost. It forms kind of out of a white mist without a head, and it takes on the shape of a woman and will walk around. Now, local historian and school teacher Rich Oswald researched Davidson's story extensively, interviewing those who allegedly saw the ghost. By the 1950s, people started seeing a pig head in the place of her missing head. It may have just been a joke or an actual ghost sighting, but that's how she got her name, the Pig Lady. Researchers continued to dig for information about her life and her grisly death. The historical details about the case are still kind of up in the air. There's some people doing research right now, and they're finding that Barbara wasn't as young as the original story says and she probably was older and probably had some disputes with her neighbors. Records were far from reliable back then, and women weren't often recorded in history at that time. It could be a way to just remember a tragic event, something shocking in a rural community, as someone getting their head cut off. People do that, obviously, and ghost stories kind of crop up around them. So, again, uh, we don't know necessarily how much of that's true and how much of it is legend that's added on over the years, but... Um, what do you think of that story, Nate? I'm sure that you've, uh, being being in your area, I'm sure that you've heard some stories about it. Yeah, so what's crazy is I have lived in Pittsburgh for 10 years, and literally Beaver County sits right above Allegheny County. So okay. like you said back in the day, that was a, a long trip on a horse and buggy, but now it takes maybe 20, 30 minutes between the two. Um, and what actually tipped me off to the story was a local that I, I went to college with a couple counties up. Um, she actually saw my page on Instagram and messaged me and said, Hey, have you ever heard of the pig lady of Candleton? Maybe it's something you want to look into. I was like, no, that sounds really interesting. So then that's what caused me to, to start Googling it. Um, I wanted to give a shout out for Gretchen, uh, for giving me that information. Yeah. And, um, Essentially, I haven't been able to, to cover much on my page because there's not like a statue yeah. of the pig lady like they do of the Mothman in in West Virginia. But it's a big tale and they actually hold a fall community festival regarding the pig lady. Um, it did not happen last year because of the yeah. pandemic. So I was sad about that, but it is coming back this fall. So if you're around the area, that's definitely something you're going to want to check out. Um, the Facebook page actually says... The Pig Lady Festival is a fall community celebration of local folklore in the tradition of Gaelic Samhain. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's end of summer festival yeah. um, with games, bonfires and ghost stories. So I've even heard that there is a barn that they used to 
basically dress up in in scary fashion with with the pig lady and, and other scary sites and they would actually do like a, a wagon tour through this barn and they would do like a whole haunted house type thing and i heard that there is a, still a barn i want to try to find it if if it's not posted for trespassing but uh basically there's like pictures of the pig lady that locals have painted and there's like a gravestone now her grave does actually still reside somewhere in the woods another follower that i've i've talked to her name is sask sasquatch girl and she actually told me that she visited the gravesite of the pig lady the, the actual lady barbara that was buried there wow. um i wasn't able to find it but i have gone out to Candleton road and it's an old country road it's definitely spooky um at night especially i didn't see any apparitions like i was hoping to <laughs> um but i drove down the road and basically tried to find this gravesite i wasn't able to find it but i guess it is there in the woods and people have stolen the the grave um a few times and basically she's supposed to haunt this is the main road that she haunts so you're supposed to drive down it at at night and you see this white apparition um and then supposedly along the the story she got a a pig head so she was replacing the head that she was missing yeah and oftentimes in these stories from all over folks i mean that's one thing like you're saying uh nate it's like here's the core of the story and successive generations you know there'll be somebody who tells the tale a different way to kind of add that little bit of oomph to scare people and then it kind of gets included in the narrative because let's just say for argument's sake people started adding that story in in the late 1800s well obviously there'd be no one alive now that would know that that was made up unless somebody wrote it down so it just becomes part of that lore and when you're dealing with these two, three, four hundred year old stories, uh, it's very easy to kind of have a uh, a central theme that is 100 percent true and then have some of these add ons. And it's very hard to sift the truth from uh, kind of the embellishments. And I've always but I've always said, I mean, me personally, I've got no doubt that most of the myth and legend that all of the groups around the world have has got to have some kind of kernel of truth to it. So, And, and all I'm saying, though, uh, folks, is that this is something that happens time and time again with stories of hauntings and murders and, and all these kind of things, is that you will have some embellishments attached that later are kind of, no one's quite sure if they're true or not, and sometimes it's really hard to go through and sort it out. Like in the last episode I did about the Congolier Mansion, there were all these stories about it, and that's kind of the twist is that you get to the end of the story, and there never was a mansion there. It was always tenement housing, but people had always told this story about this haunted house, and it was a mansion, and on and on and on. But the reality is, in that case, they could actually go back and find the actual the blueprints of the land at the time, and there was no mansion there. And it was in an mm-hmm. industrial area, so why would you why would you build a mansion in the middle of kind of like an industrial place it's not where the rich people wanted to spend their time smelling chemicals and being around you know kind of the working class people so but again it just goes to show man it's like some of these stories they're so fascinating it doesn't matter if only 10 percent's true it's still super interesting and and that's that's crazy that you've actually been out there nate you've you've been to that area and i personally find at least some of the ones that i did for illinois when i'd hear it and people will say to me oh that's all urban legend and blah 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 but if you've been out there at the very Mm -hmm. least that feeling of foreboding whether you know about the story or not 
there's definitely you you'll you'll pick up on that vibe that there's something different about that area exactly and the last thing i I wanted to say about this is um the local middle school i think it's black hawk middle school actually does a play about this every year wow so it's that ingrained in local urban and legend that this is a a play that a middle school puts on it's pretty gruesome but um that's actually what my friend gretchen had said is they performed this play when she was in school um so it almost gives me hocus pocus vibes like that's something that the kids talk about in school and then you know maybe it's real maybe it's not well it's it's almost like uh i mean you know you've got the lizzie borden story and there's a reality behind it we all know but obviously when you've got something that's got to the point where they're doing a school play about it every year it's definitely deeply rooted in the local uh tradition so wow that see that's something interesting and i didn't see anything when i was looking through to know that so once again Mm -hmm. man you're just adding some of that insider knowledge into the uh, episode so thanks for that awesome glad i could help yeah of course and like you say man look at the end of it as well when we actually when i get the show ready if you've got links to anyone else's pages or anything you like i'll always include the guests but if there's someone else that you'd like me to include a link in the show notes, just give me, just send me, you know, off air, obviously send me their details and I'll make sure to include it in the episode notes. No problem. Sounds good. Yeah. Maybe we can get a couple of listeners, especially the, the Instagram accounts that I, I mentioned to, to get them to share the, the story. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, no worries, man. So um, the next one here, Nate, is there were two stories that I could basically find very little about. And some of them, some of the other ones I found, I had to try different search terms. And once I did that, then I found them. But one of the ones that I could basically find nothing about, but it's fascinating, like I say, just by hearing the name. And that one is that Indian rock or the stone-faced giants of the North Country Woods. Um, So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, actually, I'm trying to find, so I have an Instagram post about it, you can edit this part out but i'm trying to find a link i know i responded to someone that commented um there is an actual page that goes into quite detail let me see here okay so if anyone's visiting this site it's valentine brkich.com slash short dash stories and that'll take you right to indian rock the truth behind the legend and it shows a, a photo of indian rock um you can also see it on my page as i mentioned but this is something that I just kind of stumbled on. I was actually going for a hike. This is near Candleton as well. So this is right by the pig lady that we just talked about. So that was a nice segue. Um, So this is off of North Country Trail. This is an actual trail that you can hike. And there's a sign with big yellow font that says Indian Rock. And it has an arrow pointing. And essentially you go up this hill. And it's this winding trail up this big mountain. Like there's no way... Anyone could physically lift this massive boulder up this hill. It is so steep. Like I I had trouble getting up there and I'm a pretty experienced hiker. Um, But there people have left notes and there's like, there's a whole box for it. But people leave notes that they visited, um, different things like that. And once you get up there, it's basically a, a mountain. There's a few pine trees and then there's just this massive boulder. And it has almost a face carved into it. There's two round holes, a square nose, and then a larger mouth um, circle carved into this giant boulder. Um, so essentially, people over time have wondered, what was this? Was it maybe, you know, 
coming from the Ice Age that get moved onto the mountain? Um, is this something that people have done in modern times where they come up with like a drill and make these these marks into it? But essentially what this web page that I was talking about is stating that um, it was in fact carved by early peoples who inhabited the area um, and it wasn't just for artistic purposes. The carving was created to honor another inhabitant of these thick foreboding woodlands, one who the Nodos both revered and feared. The Iroquois called them the Genawaskas, aka the Stone Giants. The Leni Lepe, aka the Delaware, referred to them as the Messingwa. These are, I'm probably not pronouncing this correctly. <laughs> uh, it's not easy, but some of those names. Yeah. <laughs> but essentially, that meant the mask beings or living solid faces. Whatever you call them, they were a race of giant, hairy, man-like creatures said to have haunted these woods for centuries. And according to some, they still do. Because of the dark grayish hair that covered their bodies, the natives believe these creatures were born directly out of local stone, hence the name. Um, so to these people, the stone giants were just creatures. They weren't just creatures of the forest. They were spirit beings who possessed magical abilities. This was their land, and the natives respected and honored them. So they basically didn't want to get in the way of these giant Bigfoot looking things. But it's interesting to note that they had silver hair. You don't hear that a lot right. about Bigfoot, especially in Pennsylvania. Um, and what they did for these hairy men was they basically gave a gift of animal sacrifices. So this is where the Indian rock comes into play. The right. native, native peoples carved the face to resemble that of the masked beings with two large eyes, a square to represent their flat noses and a circular mouth to represent the creatures doing a telltale howl or call. Here on the rock, the natives would leave regular gifts of fruits and vegetables. They would also use it as a place to sacrifice small animals with their blood pooling into the oppressions of the eyes, nose and mouth. They were made offerings to the creatures to ensure peace between them and the natives as they coexist together in the forest. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> oh, well, well, look, man, I mean, obviously I wouldn't do what I do if I wasn't open to a lot of these stories and tales. I mean, I'm one of those people I try and leave the decisions like you've already seen. I try and leave the decisions up to the listeners. But giants are one of the things that me personally, I find it the hardest to just discard and say there's nothing to it because Nearly every culture on the face of the earth, hundreds and hundreds of different cultures from all over the world, have all got stories and tales about giants to from one degree to another. Um, I'm a quarter American Indian. There's tales in my tribe, which is the Blackfoot. There's obviously tales in tribes all over, uh, especially in the desert southwest, places like the Havelock tribe. And... The first thing I thought of as you were reading that and you were talking about the descriptions of them having kind of this silver fur and being a bit more of a cannibalistic type, it reminded me very closely of the stories in Scandinavia and specifically, especially in Norway, about the trolls. So hmm. we often think of trolls as we've seen in movies and video games and things like that. I mean, that's just natural if that's where you've seen it from, but... In Scandinavian myth mythology, there were various different kinds and types of trolls. There were giant trolls with ten heads that were like a hundred feet tall. There were trolls oh, wow. that were, yeah, there were the little 
kind of really uh, nasty type that we've all heard of the stories of them hiding under bridges and that. But uh, one thing about them is they were all voracious eaters and they loved human flesh. And uh, that look, it's it's one of those things where. I know that there are people who will come along and say, oh, well, this is all just superstition. And I've I've had a few really good diatribes on here where I've just kind of gone off and I won't go into too much depth. But this is where I always laugh is that if someone comes out and they see something like the pyramids and anyone dares to say, well, they might have had help. And what I mean by help is I don't even mean UFOs turning up. I mean, they might have built the pyramid in a different way than we think of than with just ropes and rollers and that. If you do that, then there are many groups and many people in kind of mainstream science that will say you're basically culturally appropriating and taking away from the hard work they did. But at the same time, when they tell you tales of something like this, and they say, this is not an allegory, this is what happened, this is what we saw, then they say, oh, well, it's just all myth and superstition. As far as I'm concerned, you just can't have it both ways. You can't have really advanced people, and at the same time, you say everything that they talk about that you don't agree with has got to be myth. So you know, you know what I'm saying? It's just right. for me, yeah. And I've always been one of those people, and I, I understand the whole Carl Sagan premise that extraordinary claims uh, require extraordinary evidence. But there are things that we've found out in our lifetimes that we were told when we were young, no, this didn't happen, and there's no proof. And then sooner or later, something will come out. So, uh, But I will tell you this, man. Of all of the things I talk about, and I talk about some pretty far out things, the two things I've been attacked the hardest about, one of them is giants. There's just there's something about giants that there are certain individuals that are not happy with people discussing it in general. Even on the Internet where, you, where we can all talk about what, what, whatever we want and you can say it's all made up. But I get more... Uh, vitriol about giants than I ever have about UFOs or aliens, believe it or not. Now, I know that sounds, yeah, I know that might sound crazy, but um, I guess it's just that if I had to pause it, I would just say that it's a bit closer to home because you're not saying something came from another planet or another universe or dimension. You're saying that there was something here in the past. Um, and, and again, like I say, I, I fully get that there are tall tales, of course. But I've always been fascinated by stories of giants, and sooner or later, I'll do a deep dive. I, I've kind of prodded around the edges. I've done a few episodes where I've talked a little bit about it. I did some. Uh, there are a lot of myths in Malta in the Mediterranean that claim that a lot of the things that were built there were built by giants. And uh, it is, look, it, it is one of those things. It's kind of like the flood myth, you know, whether it was true or, or a myth. Hundreds of cultures, nearly all of them talk about giants of some shape or form mm -hmm. so and that's an awesome story man and i really appreciate you uh filling me in there because like i said i couldn't find much on it and um yeah that's that's interesting. yeah especially when it when it comes to native americans i think there's more credibility almost to that because these are people that lived in the woods their entire life like yep. you can't say you've lived your life in the woods unless you're actually like someone that <laughs> I don't know, was raised by wolves, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. like these people lived their lives in the woods. And this is something that obviously was that important to them that they carved this massive rock and made animal sacrifices on. So, you know, it's it's something I kind of believe in. Well, that I mean, that's it. And like I say, it's just it's all over the world. It's it's not it's not even like it's only in the Americas or it's only in Asia. Mm -hmm. It's literally everywhere. I mean, we have stories here about giants. 
There's stories about uh, Bigfoot type creatures even here on this on these few little islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So uh, I do find it really difficult. I, I I know they've got their explanations behind it, but I just feel there must be something there at the basis of it all. And um, as for real life giants, uh, my stepdad was quite a bit older than me, and he grew up in the 20s and 30s, and he actually met uh, Robert Wadlow when he lived in St. Louis, and that was the guy who's in the Guinness Book of Records for being the tallest human ever recorded at eight foot eleven. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, my my dad says anyway. He told me um, that he sold him a pair of shoes many many years ago back in the 30s, but. Um, I mean, yeah, at the very least, we know that there have been many, many people over the years that are eight feet plus. And, uh, yeah, again, do I believe every story? Do I believe some of these stories when I've heard about thousand-foot-tall giants? Well, each person their own, you know, but uh, to mm -hmm. me, uh, I do start asking about how would you feed yourself and everything else if you were a thousand feet tall, but um, <laughs> doesn't mean it's impossible. So, yeah, man, look, that that's an awesome story. And uh, see, like like I say, these are the things, folks, if you've got stories like this in your local area, uh, especially things that you can't just find anywhere, man, uh, let me know. And I'm happy to either read it on air or you can come on and talk about it. And um, Nate is once again coming through with the goods. <laughs> awesome. So, thanks. Yeah, no, of course. Now, some of these, like I say, I've written pretty extensive notes, but on some of these, I'll probably just glance over a bit just to it's it's just. It's a force of habit because usually when I do solo shows, I'm obviously writing the script for everything. So some of these I'll just kind of glance over just so I don't, you don't have to listen to a 10 minute uh, monologue on each subject. But the next one is also very close to Pittsburgh, Nate, and that's the story of the Dead Man's Hollow. And uh, so, so this I love one, this one, yeah. yeah, folks, this is a really interesting one, and this is one where. Some of these stories, uh, not only in Pennsylvania, as I say, but all over, you may have something, one thing that happened that was concrete. Let's say there was a murder, and then all these other kind of myths kind of sprung up. But Dead Man's Hollow actually had several really fascinating stories associated to it, and most of them have definitely got uh, a basis in truth. So, yeah, this is a really interesting one. So there's a certain mystique that surrounds Dead Man Hollow. It's a 450-acre patch of land located, and I'm not going to try and pronounce that River Valley, uh, Nate. I think it's Unigeni. Um, is it Allegheny? No, no. This is Y-O-U-G-H-I-O-G-H-E-N-Y. Oh, yeah. I can't say that either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I feel better now because most of these episodes, that's the precursor. I always tell people I apologize in advance for uh, for butchering a lot of these place names. So it says the remnants of a ghost town still remain from its industrial days, including the ruins of the Union Sewer Pipe Factory that burnt down in the 1920s. Then there's its unusual history. The hollow lines the, I'm just going to call it the Y River going forward, folks. The hollow <laughs> lines the Y River outside of McKeesport. It has a long list of myths and legends dating back to the 1800s. The area is now a nature preserve that spans over 400 acres owned by the Allegheny Land Trust, but was once an important part of Pittsburgh's industrial history. Back then, the area was known as the Fleming Station along the Pittsburgh and Erie P&LE Railroad Line. There are locations in the area where you can find eerie remnants of the past, as I say, a concrete slab that juts out of the riverbank as the only lasting piece of a ferry that was used to transport workers and residents across the... Well, I like this. They've shortened the river name here. It's just called the Yo. 
<laughs> Pieces of forgotten kilns scatter the park. The PNLE railroad water tank can also be found most easily on winter days along the paved portion of the Yo River Trail. Ruins of the Union sewer pipe factory that burnt down in 1925 appear to have been devoured by the nature that surrounds them. There are locations in the area where you can find... Oh, sorry, I just read that. Today, hikers and nature lovers can traverse the eight miles of trails that promise beautiful views of nature. So that's it's good to know, folks. I mean, it's it's quite a large area, but it's definitely something you can get around on foot. Mm -hmm. um, says you might also come face to face with the paranormal if you're lucky or unlucky. Embark on one of the trails that winds through the peaceful nature reserve, but be aware that others tell of strange occurrences, weird smells, and the sound of people chatting when no one's there. Don't be too shocked if you notice a shadowy figure in the distance. It may just be one of the spirits that are said to remain in the hollow. As the story goes, Dead Man's Hollow earned its dismal name in 1874 when a group of adolescent boys were roaming through the hollow and came ac across a, de a decomposed body that was hanging by a noose. The victim was never identified and no one is ever charged for the murder. Some believe that it was an act committed by the KKK, and they were not, but they were not prevalent in the Pittsburgh area during that point in history. So again, folks, it's hard for you to know, but I've done a bit of research on this. And Pennsylvania has always been a strong abolitionist state. And there are lots of stories through some of these urban legends about the KKK being involved. But it was basically the boogeyman, kind of like we hear Satanists all the time and Satan worshippers being involved. But most of these stories say there's very little uh, evidence to show that they were involved. I mean, but in this story, you'll find out there were definitely some other very bad people involved. Other versions of the legend claimed it to be the body of a woman, and another alleges it was a Native American. Many believe this tale is the reason for the name of the area. Well, again, folks, it makes sense if you found a dead body that you'd call it Dead mm -hmm. Man's Hollow. Yep. Soon the natural isolation of the hollow became the setting for another dark tale of criminal acts and untimely deaths. Robert George McClure owned a dry goods shop in McKeesport that had been robbed. McClure went on to a hunt to find those responsible for the crime, and discovered them in Dead Man's Hollow. McClure fired shots at the criminals who fired back. McClure was then killed in the encounter. Seven years later, gang leader Ward McConkie was convicted of McClure's murder and hanged for the crime in the courtyard of the Allegheny County Jail. So that's in Pittsburgh. His alleged last words were, Goodbye, all you murderers. Some believe it's his spirit that haunts Dead Man's Hollow. The Wheeling Register reported a story on March 10, 1883. The article states that the workmen... Oh, sorry, I've uh, just got that a little bit out of kilter there. So this is the story about the explosion in the quarry. I've just lined it up a little bit long here, wrong here. So basically, there's a story that there was an explosion in the quarry there in Dead Man's Hollow, and uh, many people died. And this is the story from the register, which is basically saying, here's the truth to the myth. So sorry about that, folks. It says, the article says the workmen arrived at the quarry and found their explosives frozen, but they decided to place them near a fire that had already been built for their personal warmth. So the story is that they basically tried to thaw out these explosives to use them, and they blew up. David Henninger was the foreman, accompanied by his brother George, Noble Gilkey, and an unidentified black man. David was closest to the fire at the time of the explosion and was killed instantly. His brother George was found near death and left in the quarry while the first to respond waited for a surgeon to arrive. He did not survive. The unidentified man received burns and was not expected to survive. Noble Gilkey was severely burnt on his face and body, 
but was expected to recover. Another legend states that two men robbed a bank in Clareton and met in the hollow to split the money. One of the men shot the other to keep all the money. Uh, there's a story as old as time. As the man was exiting the woods, he stashed the money in a secret hiding place. Legend says he was discovered at the opening of the woods by lawmen and gunned down. Some people believe the money is still hidden in the hollow. Another legend, now this one is fascinating, and there are tales of this all over the state, but I didn't get into depth on this, and this is the legend of a giant snake in the hollow. Yes. Yeah, it says an elderly man by the name of Charles Brown, yep, uh, good old Charlie Brown, is uh, <laughs> said to have went for a walk in Dead Man's Hollow on a hot August day in 1893. He took with him a walking stick and chose a shady path for his stroll in order to stay out of the summer heat. He heard a strange noise in the bush and paused before he saw what he believed to be a massive snake. Brown fainted at the sight and soon regained consciousness. He ran into town and announced that he had seen a snake he believed to be over 40 feet long. So folks, you know in the movies when you see these anacondas and that, most of those are kind of like, big ones are like 15 to 20 feet. And he said that this was over 40 feet long. Numerous reports dating back to the 1860s describe a snake between 30 and 40 feet long that lives within the woods at Dead Man's Hollow. The snake has become a local Loch Ness monster, as people have reported sighting this creature. Now, the thing about that that I do find interesting is he said he saw it on a sunny day, and that makes sense because obviously reptiles need the sun to warm up, so it would make sense that uh, if this snake was out, it would be out on a warm day. Right. And then it's just got, uh, there's one other story here, and it's about uh, an event in 1887 when Edward Woods drowned in the Yo River and washed ashore at Dead Man's Hollow. Some suspect it was foul play and believe his spirit still haunts the area. Tales of a force trying to pull visitors into the water abound. Now, again, I've heard this at many places, and oftentimes if you're walking across a log or something, um, I guess it's a good way to explain your uh, your balance, that you're being pulled down by this spirit, but fascinating nonetheless this uh dead man's hollow's got a little bit of everything and then there's one more here and it's about mike sacco and he was leaving work on september the 25th in 1905 it's been reported he pulled a rope to lower the elevator and it began to rise instead he foolishly jumped from the elevator in an attempt to reach the second floor and these are at the works in the dead man's hollow his body became wedged between the second floor ceiling and the floor of the elevator he was rushed to the hospital but died before arrival. Some believe his spirit is still haunting the area. So with all of these things going on, folks, you can see why there would be these stories of hauntings and ghosts and people seeing spirits and negative energy. No matter how you come at this, whether you come at it from the ghost aspect or from negative energy, you know, around murders and that. Again, when you hear these stories of places that have had five, six, seven, eight kind of murders or kind of tragic uh, circumstances it does make you wonder what's going on there so what do you know about dead man's hollow nate yeah it's this is definitely a, a famous location in the area this is the second place that i visited for my page and it's really a perfect storm of haunted location and urban exploration because you have those remnants right. of the factory that are still sitting there in the woods um, so I want to give listeners a heads up if, if you want to reach the actual remnants of this factory where there's a lot of graffiti and a lot of cool art, um, great photo opportunities. You're actually going to want to park by the Great Allegheny Passage. So that's actually some call it the gap, but it's a huge bike trail that goes across several states. But 
you're going to park there. It's going to be near a bar or a ball field. And you're going to walk probably about a mile down the trail. And then you're going to see the sign for Dead Man's Hollow. And this is actually a conservation area. This is part of the Allegheny Land Trust. So it's crazy. Like this is something you'd probably hear about in like a Goosebumps book or something, something called Dead Man's Hollow. But this is a real place. And there's signs like historical signs that say Dead Man's Hollow. Wow. So it's something that pops up and it it's just this factory and there's all this graffiti. And then right next to that is actually the enchanted staircase. Wow. Um, so it's kind of these rock formations that per that form this perfect stepping, these stepping stones that go up onto another trail. But as a whole, Deadman's Hollow is somewhere that you have to visit. I hiked pretty much all eight miles. Wow. Um, it's a great, especially in the, the fall and the spring when it's not too hot. Um, but there's another formation called Table Rock. It's you reach it about halfway up the main trail and it's just this formation of rocks. It basically looks like a giant table. Um, I've heard rumors that there is, of course, animal sacrifices done on there, um, you know, by the, the KKK or what what have you. Um, anything that gets a, an evil nature. Of course. Um, and that's really, you know, it's, it's something you have to visit. I know one of my friends on instagram the bump in the night society they have they have actually stayed there at night to do like um to to try to find a a ghost or a spirit and they did encounter um some type of you know like the the orbs i was trying to look for the the name they did see orbs in their footage um so definitely check them out and it's it's a cool place just to get out and hike for the day if you want to see something interesting and interesting formations yeah, I mean, like you say, man, it, it seems like it's got a little bit of everything, which is which is really cool because, as we all know, I mean, look, what, what we enjoy, so the people who are listening, most of you, and obviously me and Nate, what we enjoy might not be everyone's cup of tea. So it's always cool when you can find those places that have got a little bit of everything. And if you take a, a girlfriend or boyfriend or partner or family along and they are not interested in looking at some of this, at least they can go off and just enjoy nature and go and do a little bit of a wander around, you know, it's not like you're just going to see a, uh, a haunted house or something, a purported haunted house. It's not everyone's right. cup of tea. So, and that's, that's one of the things about this one that was just really fascinating to me. Not only does it have a little bit of everything, but like I say, it's, there's several instances here. It's not just one or two. And, uh, oftentimes when you hear these stories of urban legends, there'll be one or two things and then like 10 made up things. So, when you find something like this, it is pretty, uh, pretty interesting. You, you just, uh, I mean, I get that there are places like if you've got a forest near a large city, it's obviously a great place to go and commit crimes or get rid of ill-gotten gains and that. But when you've got some of these stories, like a guy drowning in a river has nothing to do with that. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. And a giant snake in the woods. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think the giant snake is uh, on the mob's payroll, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's a great story, man. And um, yeah, that's like I say, I'm just blown away by how much depth uh, a lot of these have got. Like I say, it's not just uh, it's not just like you go online and you find two paragraphs how we saw a light. You know, we were driving down the road and we saw a light on the side of the road or something. There's really in depth stuff. And a lot of these, if if they are made up, then the people who made them up should be writing books. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I think. You know, they, they could have easily changed the name of this place. It's such a dark name, but I think Pennsylvania's just, that's a cool thing is they embrace it and they just, it's, it's Dead Man's Hollow. That's what it is. And it's never going to change. 
<laughs> well, and and you've got another one coming up later in the program, Nate, with uh, Shades of Death Road. That's that's another yep. one that uh, you hear a name like that, and you're going, um, who thought of that when they were trying to sell houses, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, the next one's very close to uh, where you're originally from, Nate, and this one is the story of the Storm Hag in Lake Erie, which is right in the northwest corner of the state, folks, on obviously on Lake Erie. Lake Erie. Beautiful beaches, historic sites, venomous storm hags. Wait, venomous storm hags? Yes, you read that right. The storm <laughs> hag of Lake Erie is an old legend that goes back to at least the mid-1700s. Now, again, that's crazy. You think about some of these time frames because a lot of places west of the Mississippi had you know, barely any contact even with the rest of the country at that time. So, And this story goes back all the way back then. So, since they were first explored by early American settlers, the treacherous waters of the Great Lakes have been subject to legends. Mythical beings, such as sea creatures and sirens, have been blamed for centuries as the catalyst of many shipwrecks across the world. Lake Erie, a great lake bordering Pennsylvania and Ohio, has its own version of this myth, the Storm Hag. The Storm Hag is described as rail-thin, hideous demon of the lake. She has bright, glowing yellow eyes and can that can pierce the darkness. Her skin is a sickly, pale green. Her teeth are pointed and sharp, like a shark's. She is sometimes called Jenny Green Teeth, as her teeth are said to be a deep moss green. At the end of her long arms are talon-like claws dripping with venom. It is said that one touch of her claws is enough to kill a man instantly. She lurks below the surface of the lake near Pres Presque Isle. Her Presque Isle, yep. Oh, sweet. Good. I'm glad I got that one right. <laughs> um, I was looking at Duquesne, and I was like, oh, Presque, that must be pretty close. <laughs> her lithe form forever swimming through the weeds and the mire. Pale and green of skin, her yellow eyes shine luminously in the dark, and her thin, long arms wrap themselves around the unwary, while foul, green-pointed teeth sink into soft flesh and sharp nails at the end of long, bony fingers stroke you into the deepest sleep there is. She is called by many names, but the sailors of Lake Erie, she is known as the Storm Hag. The creature is said to be a sea witch, evil Jenny Greenteeth, who summoned the storms and pulled shipwrecked sailors down into her evil embrace to live with her forever at the bottom of the lake. Sometimes she waits until the calm right after the storm to attack, when the sailors relax their guard. Lulled into thinking that the danger had passed with the storm, the Storm Hag burst forth from the dark waters of the lake spewing forth lightning and wind like venom, and the ship will vanish, never to be seen again. There's only one warning before she strikes. If you listen closely, you can hear her singing against the harsh wind and the thrashing of the waves. Come into the water, love. Dance beneath the waves. Where dwell the bones of sailor lads inside my saffron cave? And as soon as the seafarer hears the song of the storm hag, she attacks. She calls up a violent storm that tosses the crew of the vessel around, so she can lurch up from the water and grab them with her long arms. Others tell that she waits the storm out, and when the sailors believe all is calm, she rises from the waves, spitting lightning and winds with such force the entire vessel sinks within a few seconds. Local history has it that on a fall evening in 1782, an owler ship was caught in a bad storm on the lake and desperately tried to make it back to the port at Presque Isle. It was tossed to and fro violently for more than an hour, and when it was in sight of land, the storm abruptly stopped. The clouds dissipated, and the moonlight from the full moon illuminated the water, and the sailors could see they were less than a mile from the northern end of the peninsula and home. 
Without warning, the water next to their boat foamed and the storm hag burst forth from the surface. She spewed venom and attacked the crew, unleashing her fury upon them. Within seconds, the ship and its crew were taken beneath the waves to their doom. Witnesses on shore apparently heard the screams of the sailors echoing out across the lake just before the vessel disappeared. To this day, some of those who sailed the lake near Presque Isle claim to hear phantom screams of the victims who were taken so long ago. If you can, flee immediately, for the storm hag is right beside you. If you cannot, then pray to your god for mercy, for the storm hag will grant you none. Her whirlpool will suck down your ship, and her long green arms will lovingly stroke you into the depths of the lake, where she will feast on your body among the weeds. The storm hag has been blamed for centuries for the deaths and disappearances of numerous ships and sailors who have ventured out onto Lake Erie's waters and never returned. Now there's a couple others here I'm just going to go through briefly. It says on December 1942, the oil tanker Clevco was being escorted with tow line by the tugboat Admiral. They had left port at Toledo and were traveling east when just off the coast of Cleveland, something strange happened. At 4 a.m., the Clevco radioed that the Admiral had disappeared without incident. The crew noted that the tow line was no longer attached to the tugboat and it was at a sharp angle into the waves, as if the tugboat had somehow sunk to the bottom of the lake without a sound. The Clevco immediately stopped and radioed the Coast Guard, and two cutters and a few motorboats were dispatched to the coordinates. However, arriving on the scene, they found nothing. Both ships had vanished. The next morning, the Civil Air Patrol joined the search, and pilot Claire Livingston spotted the Clevco 15 miles south from its original location. As soon as she reported the location to the Coast Guard, her radio went dead and she saw the ship disappear as a cloud of snow fell upon the ship from out of nowhere. Since her radio had died, she returned to base. The Coast Guard again went to the location and found nothing. They widened the search and the hunt continued. Strangely, later in the day, the cutter Ossipi spotted the tanker and then almost and went almost in range to board her. Once again, the snowstorm phenomena appeared and the vessel once again disappeared. Then at 3.30, amazingly, the Clevco once again was in radio contact with the Coast Guard. They told them the ship was adrift and they were unable to steer her. While in contact with them for over an hour, the authorities told them to dump their oil so the rescuers could more readily find them, because you'll have an oil slick on top of the water, folks. But at 4.30, the contact with the Clevco ceased, and it was never heard nor seen from again. Early the next morning, bodies of two crew members of the Clevco washed ashore near Cleveland, their life jackets covered in oil. No other crew members were ever found, living or dead. And then there's another one. And that's the 1937 freighter of the O.M. McFarland, which also disappeared and had extremely strange circumstances. So I don't want to go into super depth on that. But uh, yeah, it's just, again, for those of you who don't realize the size of the Great Lakes, folks, if you've never stood at the shores and seen how massive they are, it's literally like an inland sea. They're just insanely large. And so I know it's, that they're... Right. Yeah, I know there are areas that are basically like an inland Bermuda Triangle. I think in Lake Michigan, there's a Lake Michigan Triangle where they've had ships disappear throughout the years. But this one is fascinating to me, Nate, because, I mean, obviously, early settlers in the U.S. all came from Europe. But it's just fascinating because this is something you would much more think coming from somewhere like Greece or maybe even Scandinavia and Northern Europe. And here it is making an appearance in Lake Erie. And as late as 1942. 
Exactly. And you, you covered this one very well. I don't have much to add, but I will comment that, you know, like you were saying, when you go to a great lake, it's you don't see the other side of the lake. Like it's that massive. It looks like you're at the ocean and um, it's really the only beach that Pennsylvania has. So I'm appreciative of it, even <laughs> if it's, it's sometimes it's closed down because they're, the beaches aren't the cleanest. But you know, there's probably not a lot of ships that are traveling as much as they did back in the day, so we might not hear as much about it. Right. But this is a body of of fresh water. Like I, I could see, you know, like you were saying in Europe, the kraken out in the the ocean. That could be a giant octopus. That could be a giant squid, which we know giant squids actually exist. Yeah. Um. But in a fresh body of water, like there's not much. It it almost lends a hand to the sirens of yes. Greek mythology, like in the Odyssey. I did study a, a bit about that because I am a quarter Greek. Okay. Uh, my, my great grandparents came from Athens and I did get to go over in college and it was neat. I got to go to some of the islands and we actually took a ferry over to Turkey as well. But um, yeah, it, it reminds me of the, the siren, you know, maybe the, the Greeks or the Europeans that came and settled in this area. Those were campfire tales or, or, you know, tall tales that people told while they're out on, on sea to, to make it interesting. But, you know, that something could have happened. We we don't really have documentation about it, but it's, it sounds frightening for sure. Oh, oh yeah, man. Um, just that, uh, that description of this creature. But uh, again, I mean, even where I'm originally from, we had a very deep glacial lake uh, called Lake Ponderay. And that lake is about 12 or 1300 feet. And it's such a big and deep lake that we actually had a naval base on the lake. And during World War II, they tested submarines and various craft there in the lake. And there's a story that I only heard kind of tongue-in-cheek when I was younger. But now I've had a lot of people ask me about it. Well, surely you know about the Ponderay Paddler, you know, which is supposed to be a very Loch Ness-type creature or a plesiosaur. And I'm like, no, it's basically everybody laughed about it. But we mm -hmm. had even even there on that lake. And I mean, it is a very large lake. I think it's top 10 in the U.S., you know, for depth and, and volume of water and all of that. But even on that lake and being very scarcely populated compared to the Great Lakes, I mean, we had stories of ships going missing and everything else. And I know I knew very uh, quite a few family members that would be out on the lake fishing and just out of nowhere, a squall would blow up on the lake. So you could see how especially small boats and that would just have no chance if a storm blew up out of nowhere and you're not prepared for it you're going to get swamped so right but yeah that's they probably tied that to some type of folklore or tall tale you know about a monster well the one about this and and again i if i had time and maybe at some point i will go back but i i know it was october and i know that that can be cold weather but i just found it you know like the details of the story that the snow storm kept blowing over these uh ships and then they disappear i mean it wasn't like clouds blew up or you know it was mm -hmm. specifically that it was a snowstorm and i found that really interesting so again if this is just as they say if these are just old wives tales well then again they need uh they need to get an award for writing because that's very well done it's just an excellent little touch there that they've added to the story exactly one thought I, one thought i just thought of is i do believe if you go up to Lake Erie on the pier, there's actually like a, there's a few historical markers and one of them mentions a spirit of Lake Erie and it's more of like a guiding spirit. Right. So 
Um, not sure if you ever heard about that, but basically it's, yeah. it says that it forms this spirit of Lake Erie formed a sandbar in, in the formation of an arm underneath the water and it's supposed to help guide ships. So maybe they needed something to combat the storm hag. <laughs> hey, hey, it's a good idea, man. It's, uh, because, uh, it, it back then it's just no different than, uh, in the age of exploration, you've got to, you, you're not going to make money if you're not going to force those guys to get out there and do their sailing. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure the bosses had some idea to uh, overcome it. So now I've got the next one here. And this one, folks, uh, this is another one where I need Nate's expertise because I couldn't find a whole lot about it. And again, it might just be that it was whatever I'm looking for. Maybe it goes by another name. But this one is uh, the pig people of Radio Tower Hill. And what I could basically find is just a scant paragraph. And it says... The Pig People, uh, Meadville in Crawford County. It says, if you visit Radio Tower Hill, you may run across the restless spirits of the Pig People roaming the area. This local urban legend is based on the reported former existence of a leper's hospice on the site and the distorted malformation of the patient's faces. And that's literally all I could find about it. It's, I don't think, a, a widely told tale, but like you said, it does originate in Meadville or Crawford County. So this is one that hits hope, you know, very close to home because actually I grew up on Radio Tower Hill. Really? Um, yep. So it's basically, it's, it's this big tower just outside of the city of Meadville. By city, it's only 16,000 people, but, yeah. um, it's a little suburb of, of Meadville and you, we live up on this hill. Um, and it's called, it's got the nickname Radio Tower Hill. There's a big radio tower up there, obviously, but when I first, transferred to I think I was in sixth grade so that would have been middle school Um, when I first transferred people asked me of course where I lived because they wanted to come visit we wanted to hang out and I told them up here on Radio Tower Hill and they're like oh my gosh that's where the pig people live and I was like what like what are you talking about I've never heard of that in my life and it it's this old legend that's just held on and people are afraid of going up there and actually we've had to um like call police up we've had to block off like pull-offs on the road because teenagers still come up here and it's like that like you know a boy taking his girlfriend up to park and try to to get to get on her to you know to make her scared so that they can make out or whatever but it's one of those tales and it just hangs on and we we still have to call the the police to to get the kids out of there but essentially like you said it was a colony of people that i think was leprosy they had um, but they had these these deformed faces, and they were supposed to be living in this small hut in the woods, and and they would attack you f- if they saw you coming. I think there's like a very amateur made YouTube video on it. If you want to, if okay. you have some time on your hands, you can look that up. But that's essentially as far as that one goes. And and there's lots of variations on that basic tale that I found not only in Pennsylvania, but like I say, in Illinois and other places. I mean, there's the stories. I did a very early episode of The Paranormal Sun about the Melonheads in Wisconsin and Ohio and one other state. I just can't remember it off the top of my head. Michigan, that's it. And basically, it's the same kind of tale about these uh, deformed children who are basically hiding out in the woods and they're cannibals. And if you go out there at night, they'll come after you. And then there's also the stories of the albinos and the stories about these, they, they'll call them uh, the little people, you know, midgets, same kind of thing yeah. that, yeah. So it does seem to be one of those uh, variations. 
that there are lots of stories like this, like you say, with very little behind them, which in the cases of something like this, it's probably that original leper colony. And then it's just somebody's told a story and just what you were saying, like when you were in school, they've done, oh, well, the, the pig people live there and you go, what? And then they tell you this, <laughs> the, the, this is the true story of the pig people. And the right. reality is, you know, it was somebody, like you said, started out in the 50s or whatever, trying to scare the heck out of everyone and um, just kind of uh, went from there and gets passed down through time as, well, you know, it goes from, well, what if this was the case to, no, I know it's true because my uncle saw it and, you know, and then next thing it happened to my dad and, yeah, it just kind of corrupts through time. So, yeah, that's that's just another little interesting one. And we had a Tower Hill in central Illinois fairly close to where I lived and I covered that in the Illinois episode and it was as with so many there's a cemetery there and it was a story about hauntings and different things and I never got to go there we talked about doing it a few times but we just never went around and did it but again um, named for the same reason like you said there's a big radio tower there so very imaginative naming you know <laughs> interesting yeah <laughs> I will say that I after all those years that I lived on Radio Tower Hill I never saw a big person so don't get your hopes up <laughs> oh dang man I was yeah. booking the next flight to go and try and find out <laughs> but again what you were saying about people turning up um, on the land uh, it this is a theme again folks for those of you who may not know lots of these stories especially some of these purportedly haunted woods and drives and that there are lots of stories that basically people have to call the police because it's not people just driving. It's, you know, it's bad enough if you live on a country lane having people driving by, but it's kids driving by with music cranked up, getting drunk, throwing trash and that out of the car yep. windows. You know, people are trying to sleep for work. So it's funny how our lives kind of change as we age. And when we're a teenager, we go, oh, oh, those people, you know, they're so stuck up and they're so mean. And then as you get older, it's like, well, if somebody was at my and going down my drive at 2 a.m., cranking up the stereo and throwing trash out, I'd probably be calling the cops as well. So, Right, <laughs> when you're trying to sleep and you have to work the next day, it's not as fun. <laughs> yeah, man, exactly. And uh, Nate, at any point, if it gets, because um, I know it's Sunday night there, so if you need to call it at any point, just let me know. And what we can always do is we can always stop where we are and come back and record at a later date as well, just so you know. I don't want to pin you down with work in the morning, man, that's all. Okay, yeah, my phone, I'm talking on my phone right now, but it's about a little over a quarter, so we might not be able to make through all of it, but I have do have some time left. All good. So the next one here is uh, Hillview Manor, and this is on the western state line of Pennsylvania, and it says that Hillview Manor was known as the Lawrence County Home for the Aged, also known as the Poor House or Poor Farm, and housed the county's mentally ill severely destitute and elderly residents that didn't have any known family. It was built to replace the aging Newcastle City home and consolidated various small institutions around the county. Roaming the second-floor hallways of Hillview Manor, a young boy became a familiar sight to employees of the former Lawrence County nursing home. Jeffrey, the staff called him. He had an affinity for Babe Ruth and the New York Yankees and was often seen wandering around with a baseball or hanging out near a nurse's station. The caveat to Jeffrey's appearances? He's a ghost. Jeffrey and several others allegedly haunt this empty behemoth at 2801 Elwood Road in Shenango Township. Shenango, yeah. Shenango, thank you. Yeah, I missed yep. the second end. In 1867, a commission procured a municipal farm 
to provide work and housing for the city's indigenous. Some of these words, I don't hear them often, so they twist me. (laughs) (laughs) By the 1920s, the city and county's poor departments joined forces to create a new state-of-the-art building equipped to handle the needs of men, women, and children, known as the County Poor Farm. The facility was completed in 1926, and its first residents, which were 13 men, three women, and one young boy, so at least there is a tie-in there that there was a young boy there at that time, walked through the doors in 19, in oh, sorry on October 20th. Now, by 1977, it became the County Nursing Home, and its name was changed to Hillview Manor. Some claim that the boy, Charlie, never left, and that he's not alone. There are others, friendly and not so friendly, who still call Hillview Manor home. The facility officially closed on February 12, 2004, and was sold a year later during a public auction. I was sitting in the office one day and had a nice view up the stairwell, says Melissa Keene, a Sharon resident who is the tour guide, southeast of Newcastle. I looked up and watched a woman dressed in 1950s-era nurse outfit walk down the stairwell, through the lobby, and through the front door, and then vanish. On a recent tour, a visitor's fully charged cell phone battery suddenly went dead. A few minutes later, he and a woman in the group heard the whisper of another woman's voice behind them, but there was no one there. This is one of the most active buildings I've ever been in, says Joe Moxon, co-founder of Elwood City-based Digital Paranormal Investigations. Well, on over 20 ghost hunts at Hillview, Moxon said he has tape-recorded dozens of voices from the, of those from the world beyond. He also has a video showing what he said is a partially transparent apparition of a human behind glass doors that gradually faded away. His wife has displays of photos taken at the building which she says are orbs, which to some paranormal investigators are transparent poles or globes of light that are spirits. For Keen, Hillview is a second home. After watching a TV ghost investigation show nine years, uh, sorry, nine years ago featuring Hillview, she was invited by a friend to, to take a similar adventure. An advanced ghost hunter friend of hers has an ovalus, equipment used for paranormal investigators, they say helps communicate with ghosts. The ovalus was designed for people to ask questions and give vocal answers, but couldn't give proper name answers, Keen said. They walked into the boiler room where a deceased maintenance man, just known as George, had worked. It turns out he was a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan. She said, I asked George who his favorite quarterback was. Next thing I know, I hear the words, Terry Bradshaw. Keen <laughs> said, now that's interesting because, again, he didn't say Terry, or he didn't even say Bradshaw. He said Terry Bradshaw. Bradshaw was the Steelers' famous quarterback, as we all know, well, most of us, who led the team to four Super Bowls in the 70s. Keen became hooked on ghost hunting. With the permission of the Trico family, who now owns the site, she has been investigating Hillview for nine years and worked as a tour guide for the past two years. So, yeah, again, this is another one that there have been several sightings and, and several different instances. What do you know about it, uh, Nate? Do you know a bit about Hillview Manor? Yeah, man, this place is insane. It started as a poor farm, so basically it was people that didn't have anywhere to go and they didn't have money. So they would come here and work and were basically given a place to live. And like you said, eventually down the, the line, it was turned into a home for the aged. Um, and it was closed pretty recently in 2004 due to financial constraints. So the, so the first floor of the building still has electricity. The rest is not. I actually had the pleasure of touring Hillview Manor, um, back in the fall with my partner. 
and we're very amateur ghost hunters. We don't know much about it, but we do have apps on our phones and we took those in and, um, a lot of shows have been here. It's, it's pretty popular even outside of Pennsylvania. Like I know Destination Fear was just here and one of the cast members actually had such a strong physical reaction to whatever was where he was standing. He vomited and had to go to the ER room. Wow. But when we toured, basically, I think on the first floor, there was a woman who was in a wheelchair. I don't know her name off the top of my head, but she would, she had a room right by the side door and she would go out to the side door every day and feed the birds. That was her thing. Um, one day she got, came back in and got confused and actually went down the stairwell in her chair, um, that went to the basement and she died shortly after that accident. So her spirit is supposed to haunt that the bottom of that stairwell leading into the basement. Um, me and my partner, JD, we actually went down to the basement and I didn't any, I didn't experience anything personally, but JD got a chill down his spine as soon as we walked past that location. Um, and he's definitely a skeptic too. And, and I believe him. He's not one that's into foolery. Right. So that was interesting. Um, and we actually, we didn't know these two girls, but they were also meeting for a tour at the same time. So we kind of talked with them and they went to visit George in the boiler room and actually had their hair pulled. Wow. We didn't get any, all we got was we took in the app and we were talking about the Steelers. I don't know if it picked up the word, but the actual app, when we asked him to talk about the Steelers, it said steal. Wow. Like it came up, you know, those, those apps that it's supposed to pick up what the ghosts are saying to you. Yeah. It said steal, which it was interesting. Um, another location that's really haunted is the chapel. So there's actually a chapel on site at Hillview Manor. Um, and it's, it's supposed to be very heavily haunted. And when we went in there with our ghost app, we got demon, we got evil <laughs> came up. Oh dear. Satan, the actual word Satan came up when we were in the the chapel and that really freaked us out we got out of out of there right away yeah and um it it's funny you say that and and the reason i say is that people think now now like me personally okay i'm it's i definitely believe there's something more to our existence than that we're just kind of flesh robots and we're gonna die and that's it i don't know exactly what it is i'm not overly religious per se I'd be more what you would call a spiritual person. And I know that's a bit of a cop out, but it's just the reality. But the thing is, like, I've had many people say to me, oh, well, because of that, you know, you must not have any fear about things like this. Hey, look, it doesn't matter what you call it. You can call it a demon. You can call it an entity. If it's got negative, um, if it's got negative things towards me, um, I, I don't need to label it to uh, avoid it. You know what I mean? So, right. Um, and another podcast show that's uh, always really supportive of me, they were just talking about uh, Ouija boards, and they had a thing, and, and I basically told them I don't want anything to do with them. And I said to them, I know it might sound old-fashioned. People say that there's lots of things I delve into that I shouldn't, but yet, for me personally, I've just heard too many stories about Ouija boards as a conduit. I personally don't want anything to do with it. And uh, you see... Like me, um, I only probably realized in the last year and a half or two years what an empath actually is. And I'd feel that I'm very much an empath and very similar to your partner. I get those kind of things. I, I get feelings before 
before and more so than I get sight. So I don't so much visually see things. I get that bad, you know, that old saying about having the, that bad heebie-jeebie type feeling. And right. Yeah, and, and it freaks me out. I mean, there are times I'll be here in the studio recording like two or three in the morning, and I'll start getting goosebumps up and down my arms, and I'll just go, I'm going to go and get a cup of coffee. For a <laughs> Take a break. Back. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I look, I, I do find it fascinating that so many people have these experiences, and it to me it's always just doubly important to me when people who are skeptics get those feelings again i'm not saying every story out there is true but it just goes to show that even when the skeptics kind of get these odd experiences or odd feelings it just goes to show that we're not all nuts so um it it always makes me feel better when others do as well so yeah folks so that's uh hillview manor and so if you're in the state and you want to go and check out something freaky definitely go there from everything that nate said and what I read here, it's definitely a, a fascinating place. Yeah, the the tours are definitely affordable. I think we made maybe paid like thirty bucks a person, but you get like you get to explore the whole place, and you get, you get like an hour or two to do it. It's it's definitely worth it, and it helps to keep the place open, and yeah. and so it does become an, another abandoned location. Yeah, and uh, and again, folks, I mean, it's one of those things where. I guess it's a, some people will look at it and they'll say, oh, well, it's commercialized. But at the other hand, I'd rather have people going somewhere where they're actually learning about the history of it, learning some of the things that are going on, and also being safe. Because you go to some of these abandoned locations and fall through a floor or something, and you're out there in the middle of nowhere uh, with no cell phone coverage. The last thing we need is to add another right. <laughs> story to something like this. Yeah. Yeah. So the next one here, Nate, will be very close to home for you as well. And this is the story of the Allegheny County Jail in Pittsburgh. The The jail was built between 1884 and 1886, so it's it's an older jail, folks. Uh, there were all sorts of tales of the paranormal in the, in the courthouse as well. So the courthouse was built next door to the jail, and there's a bridge that goes over, and it's called the Bridge of Sighs. And they say it's got to do with the similarity of a famous bridge in Venice, but I think that's awesome because you're in the courthouse, you're charged, and then you're going to the jail, you're going over. Of course, the natural human reaction is most of those who have been convicted are going to be having a sad sigh, so I think that's an awesome name for it. And uh, so it says uh, there's one tale in particular that started with a love triangle more than a century ago. It says if the walls of the old Allegheny County Jail could talk, they'd likely share some pretty interesting stories. A lot of times it's because people either have a violent death or a strong attachment to a place. Maybe something traumatic happened. They just don't want to leave. In 1902, inmates and brothers Ed and Jack Biddle were known to rob, torture, and kill. Still, Kate Sofell, the wife of the jail warden, didn't seem to mind their sordid history. The guys were young and famous and handsome, and the ladies in Pittsburgh went rock star crazy for them. (laughs) Sofell fell in love with one of the brothers and helped him escape. Two years later, and after a shootout, sorry, two days later, and after a shootout in Butler County, the brothers were dead. Miss Sofell's love affair was over. Today, it said she still roams the old jail, shuffling papers and touching unsuspecting guards. One night, it began to move on its own, and it sounded like sand falling through the wall, and once, he felt a cold hand on his arm, Thomas said, but Miss Sofell isn't the only spirit lurking around. They used to hang people in the jail. There were 58 hangings, and they say that after every hanging, there's a ghost sighting. But it was William Culp who was really, who really caused a scare in 1907. 
He haunted the prisoners by reenacting a horrific murder every night. Soon, all the prisoners on death row were saying they were seeing the same thing happen every night between 12 and 1 a.m. These men were so terrified that the warden took pity on them and moved murderer's row to a different section of the jail. While that section of the old jail no longer exists, it is now what is the family court. The stories do live on. So think of this, folks. So over a 100 years ago, back when they didn't have a lot of sympathy for prisoners, it must have really scared these guys on death row. And obviously it had an effect on the warden for him to allow them to move to another part of the jail. So what I'm saying is, to me, that's about as good uh, an evidence as you're going to get because they didn't screw around back then. And they weren't going to move prisoners just because they told, you know, told them that they were scared of a ghost. So they must have really freaked out. And I find it fascinating, again, that this happened every night between midnight and 1 a.m. Because I've heard other stories about hauntings at a specific time every day or every week or every month but always at the same time. So uh, I'm sure you know a, li a bit about the Allegheny County Jail, Nate. Yeah, well, actually, um, I think you covered this one very well. This is one I haven't actually visited personally, but I do live in Allegheny, Allegheny County. Um, so obviously it's something that comes up whenever you read about the haunted history of Pittsburgh. It's, it's one of the main ones. I do believe they do tours there from like maybe April through November. So I did miss my shot at going there. But um, I think this is the one where they recorded the jail, where they shot the jail scenes of Silence of the Lambs. Wow. Yeah, like the stone building. I think the stone jail cells is, is where they shot that those parts. Um, and the, the Silence of the Lambs house where Buffalo Bill is, is actually located around Pittsburgh as well. It just recently sold. Um, but yeah, this one I, I haven't personally visited and it's definitely on my list to check out. It's, it's something that just the building looking at it, you're like, wow, this is amazing architecture. <laughs> right. So there's, there's more to it. You know, if you go there and, um, there's not, and, and you don't see something paranormal, at least you'll get a look at this awesome, uh, building from the 1880s. Right. Well, then the next one here, man, this, uh, I don't do a lot of true crime on the program, and the reason I say that is it's nothing against true crime. It's just it's a very saturated market, and most people can find people out there that do true crime that uh, do it much better than me. But this one, man, I'll tell you what. I'm pretty, I used to be a butcher, Nate. I grew up in the country. It takes a lot to kind of really uh, give me that revulsion-type feeling. But this one, man, is pretty freaky. And considering that it happened nearly 100 years ago as well, this story is pretty uh, creepy, and this is the story of the murder swamp around Mahonington. And that's on the western border of the state, folks. And this one, again, this is not a one-off where there was a horrific murder. I mean, this one is the story that as I pulled the string on the sweater, so to speak, there was just more and more to it. So um, this one starts out with a string of murders in Elwood City, and it began nearly a century ago. And they were so gruesome, they made they would still make tabloid headlines today, and I fully agree with that. The suspected serial killer who decapitated and dismembered his victims was never caught. The suspect is believed to have killed 15 or more people, and the killings were commonly called the Swamp Murders. Between July 1923 and January 1925, two children were first murdered. The murders remained unsolved and a mystery, part of an even larger mystery. On March 7, 1921, in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, 
W.C. Jackson came home at four o'clock from the Elwood City Mill and found a man knocking at the door. He shrugged it off. W.C. ran some errands and watched the man walk off. When W.C. returned home, the fireplace was out, which was unusual at the time, and the house was dead quiet. Upon calling for his mother, 73-year-old Emma Jackson, he heard no response. Searching for his mom, W.C. found his mother sprawled across a blood-splotched bed. Her throat was violently slashed and dangling from the side of her bed, her hands resting on her breasts. Aghast and fearing the killer was still in the house, he grabbed a shotgun and checked the room. W.C. remembered the man and ran after him. The man was Andrew Kuntz. The pair searched the premises and came up empty, so obviously he tracked this man down and found out he wasn't the murderer. W.C. phoned Constable W.C. Morrison. I find it interesting that they both have W.C. as their initials. <laughs> Coroner H.E. Helling and Undertaker J.I. Porter. Robbery was not a motive as there were valuables such as jewelry left in the house. With the motive unknown and no suspects to go off of, the case went cold. In mid-July of 1923, so about two years later, the torso of a little girl, approximately six years old, was found near Rock Point on the Beaver River, just south of Wampum. The body was discovered by C.C. Whiteside, manager of the stone quarry in the area, and never identified. A brief story about the case is included in Hell's Wasteland, the Pennsylvania Torso Murders by James Jesson Bandel. It is one of 15 unsolved murders, as I say, from 1923 to 1940, and with 11 unidentified bodies. The headless, armless, legless body of the little girl had been in the water for a long time. There were no reports of a child missing in the year before the body was discovered, and no way to identify the body. The case is not unique. On January the 3rd of 1925, the charred remains of Luigi Nocesi, 14, were found in a boys' clubhouse shack in Park Gate near Elwood City. This, too, is a mystery within a mystery. On January the 2nd, so the day before, Generoso Dominic Nocesi went to police because his son had not returned after leaving the family home on Crescent Avenue the morning of January 1st. So the dead went to the police the day before they found the body and the day after he disappeared. A search followed, but he was not found. It, uh, it appeared the boy had run away, and then L.M. Mason, who lived in the West End, went to police with a story that young Joe Steady had told him. Steady said he and James Joseph, pals of Nochesi, had gone to their clubhouse, called the Timberwolves, and found it on fire. When the blades died down, Steady said they found the remains of a dog buried and buried the bones. The police immediately went to the site and began digging in the freshly dug earth. They found the bones of a corpse. However, it was not a dog. It was the head, arms, and legs, or sorry, the head, arms, and legs were missing and never found. Local doctors examined the torso and decided it had human bones. Nochesi's parents, Dominic and Philmina, refused to believe that it was their son. The remains were sent to Mercy Hospital in Pittsburgh for verification. And Dr. Dwayne Ritchie said the remains were those of a boy younger than 17 years old. On October 6, 1925, Samuel J. Harris discovered the two- to three-week-old corpse of a decapitated white male under a log while hunting for ducks. Detective C.W. Hicks was looking for evidence near the log and smelled a foul odor emanating from another log. Upon rolling that log over, the decomposing head of the man was looking up at him. Dirt was caked on the victim's hair and his and face making identification difficult. A hat, rope, and burnt clothing was found nearby. The evidence indicates the victim was killed two to three weeks prior in a separate location and dumped in the swamp. 
The killer tried to burn the victim's clothing and left, but due to the soggy environment, not everything burned. Now, on October 17th, so about a week and a bit after, four teenage boys were duck hunting near the body of the previous discoveries when they, too, found another body in the swamp. The body was just bones and headless, partially clothed and poorly hidden under a log. The only nearby evidence the police found was a penknife. The coroners determined the remains were that of a male, about six feet tall, and that he had died about four months before his discovery from decapitation via a precise blow to the neck. Two days later, authorities began searching for evidence when they thought they may have made an important discovery to the previous victim, a human skull. Upon examination, however, the coroner determined that the skull was not that of the previous victim, but of a third victim, potentially that of an elderly female. It was determined that the victim's head had been dumped in the swamp nearly a year earlier. Near the skull, a pile of clothes were found that belonged to the previous victim, found two days prior. Two days later, police performed a massive search of the so-called murder swamp and found 15 small bones, presum presumably that of the hands or feet, two vertebrae, the lower jaw of the third victim, a blue cap, a strip of dried human flesh, and hair caked in dried human blood, presumably from one of the victim's scalps. Now that's not the end of it, folks. Nearly ten years later, two men were running their hunting dogs through the alleged murder swamp when they discovered the badly decomposed body of another man. It was evening, and Constable Walter G. Bannon was unable to secure the crime scene until morning. The body was partially buried face down, with his head still attached. Remo removal of the body revealed a whiskey bottle and a large iron spike hidden under the body. The body was presumably buried four months prior. On July 1st of 1936, so again, about a year and a half later, two P&LE workers at Newcastle Junction were inspecting a string of old boxcars that had been abandoned for the past five years when they noticed one of them was open. Inside the boxcar, they found a badly decomposed body of a male covered in a large burlap sack. The body had been there for several months, and the body was on top of a pouch of tobacco and three blood-stained newspapers from late July 1933. Two were from the Pittsburgh Press, and one was from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Now, on October the 13th of 1939, so nearly five years later, a group of four boys were looking for walnuts along the edge of the murder swamp when they found a decapitated body of a young male, about 18 years old, hidden in a thicket of tall grass. The body had been placed on top of newspaper, then burned. It was found that newspaper was also placed in the victim's hands, as well to remove fingerprints. The coroner determined the head was also removed with skill and that the body was roughly one month old. Six days later, a PLE worker at Newcastle Junction discovered a severed head in an empty gondola car that was on the canal track, meaning the track closest to the river, just 700 yards away from the body found six days earlier. It was determined that this was the head of the young man found on the 13th. It had been determined the murder was... Sorry, it, it had been determined the murder occurred in the swamp and the killer had removed the head and placed it in the gondola car. On May 3rd of 1940, PNLE workers in the rail yards at McKeese Rock near Pittsburgh were inspecting a string of old boxcars when they found the mutilated remains of a naked man covered in a large burlap bag. The victim had been cut into seven pieces. All the pieces were there except for the head. Police were contacted, and minutes later, two more bodies were found, one of which was of a known local former convict from Wisconsin, named James David Nicholson. Nicholson had been decapitated and the word Nazi carved into his chest, but the Z was backwards. A large percentage of people from Wisconsin were German, so 
I think the killer carved Nazi into his chest because the man may have been German. And this is the writer's supposition, folks, not mine, though this hasn't been proven. The other victim was a man who had been cut into five pieces and covered in a large burlap sack. They had been killed three to six months prior to the discovery and were all burned to some degree. There were no strong suspects in any of the cases, though it is believed that the killer may have been an employee of the railroads who knew human anatomy. Around the same time of the swamp murders, mere 100 miles away was the much more famous Cleveland Torso Killings. A railway ran from Kingsbury Run to Newcastle, and it is believed the swamp murder and the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run may have been the same people. Look, folks, I'd never heard of either of these, uh, either these uh, the swamp murders or this mad butcher, but I'll tell you, it definitely would still make front page news today. And it's just freaky, I mean. And there were some other cases as well that happened, but um, it, I just found it astounding that there were so many murders in this small area and these bodies were just found like one after the other night. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, and it's one that sends chills down my spine. I think this is one that I haven't really looked into, at least for exploring, because I don't like to mess with things yeah. that you know are real, like yeah. true crime, yeah, like man. people were murdered in the swamp. I'm not just going to walk out there and look around, but <laughs> yeah. um, it's something that is close to home. And, you know, this this is something if there's an evil person out there, it, it could happen anywhere. And that's why true crime is, is fascinating, I think. Well, the thing to me that uh, there, I, I had many emotions while looking into this, don't get me wrong, but really what I fully expected when uh, I, I found this was I, I thought it was going to be something like there was a legend of someone killing their lover. And this, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I thought right. it was just going to be this very loose kind of I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> and man, as I just went through this and it was just body after body. And like I say, not just dead body but the way they were killed and yeah um i've definitely got goosebumps right now and it was definitely a freaky tale and look i'm the same as you we're all different we're all wired differently and i don't judge people who want to go and see like murder scenes and that that's up to them but me personally being that empathic type person i think that even today i would pick up the resonance of those victims and i don't think it would be a good thing for me personally so yeah it's not something i've ever wanted to do um but again i mean i know there are people that are just absolutely fascinated with it and yeah uh so, so be it uh, but uh, i'll definitely not be going out of my way to check out any place like that um where exactly, i'm originally yeah where i'm originally from in in northern idaho kind of northern idaho western washington and eastern montana are all very similar not only in geography, but the people. It, it's kind of like you were saying in Pennsylvania. You've got all the people that live in the country. They don't necessarily feel associated with Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. But that's where Ted Bundy was burying bodies was all over in Washington State in the uh, in the Olympic Park. And, that. and um, I mean, so, so we definitely had our history of such things. And I'll tell you what, man, um, I definitely wouldn't have wanted to go out there uh, because apparently there are stories of people finding bodies like 10 and 15 years later just out trying to enjoy nature and, you know, finding these bodies. So it would definitely freak me out. Yeah, that would not be a fun discovery to have no, no, <laughs> at all. I totally agree. The next one here is another one I couldn't find a whole lot on. I've, I've got a couple of uh, real short paragraphs about it, but I'm sure uh, that you can fill us in with some of the fun stories of this. So for those of you who don't know, Pennsylvania... 
uh, is an area that is well known for mushroom growing. And the reason is that mushrooms grow well underground. And in a lot of, especially the old limestone mines, they grow mushrooms. And there was a point in, I think it was the 30s and 40s, that basically 90% of the whole country's mushroom crop was coming out of a small area of Pennsylvania. And I found out that in 1937, there were two brothers, Menno and Ira Yoder, and they started this uh, limestone mushroom farm in this mine in West Winfield in Butler County. Uh, and they had 80 acres of these underground tunnels that they were growing mushrooms in. Now, as time went on, what they found out, especially specifically to do with uh, the Nazis in World War II, they found that an excellent place to store valuables and especially documents was underground because you could control the environment and you didn't get high temperatures or low temperatures. And so the man who started Iron Mountain Documents started in New York, but later on he opened a huge site in Boyers in Pennsylvania. Now, like I say, I, I know there's a lot of kind of urban legends and stories about what may be stored there and in some of these other mushroom mines, but I couldn't find a whole lot of them, Nate. And so I thought I'd turn it over to you and see what you might know about that. Yeah, so um, I'll be honest, I don't know a lot about it either. I, I do know from being in an abandoned group online that, you know, there are these these mushroom, abandoned mushroom uh, mines, basically. And, and it was a good job back in the day, you know, people would go down there and, and you would just pull out tons of mushrooms per day to, to be sold off. And uh, do we have Yellow Dog Village anywhere? On no. No. on our list um so that's one i actually just visited this weekend it's an abandoned um mining village in armstrong county and it's actually right next to one of the abandoned mushroom farms and oh, okay it was actually there was a an abandoned um lime mine there as well and that's where the people of the village worked and um, one thing I can kind of bring to the story is the story of, of Yellow Dog. And when these mines closed, um, basically these, these people in this area, they lost all of their income yeah. and it was really hard for the area. Um, and they had to up and move. And actually one of the things that caused a lot of these people to have to move was the lime buildup in the water. Okay. It, yeah. it caused the water to become unsafe. So. That these people sense. actually had to just leave their homes and there was in these homes there's just remnants like there's one house that we visited that has just tons of kids toys like still on the floor wow. like they never got to pack these things when they were leaving and just um you know the owner of the place now wants to, to eventually turn it into a historical museum but if anyone's interested in learning more about the mushroom or the the lime mining um definitely take a tour at yellow dog sounds very sim i mean obviously two completely different things but it sounds very simpler or very similar to i think it was pripyat in the ukraine which is the city that was uh within proximity of chernobyl and basically they gave the residents 10 minutes to get out it was basically right. literally you've got 10 minutes to pack up your life uh and get out and you know they've had some of these urban explorers have gone back obviously since then and like you say, they'll go into a house and there'll be uh, stuff sitting there, uh, kids' toys, newspapers, all of that. And I do think, I don't know about everyone, but I think people in general are fascinated about these stories because, for example, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Mary Celeste, but 
that's one of the most famous stories of kind of a ghost ship that was they basically a crew finds a ship at sea and it's been abandoned and there seems to be this theme it seems to be something in our human nature that people are always fascinated about that like you were saying you go in a place and it looks like people had to get out in a hurry and it seems that that kind of tickles our imaginations that we seem to love that story because like the story of the mary celeste it was later added to and people again they fabricated the fact that there was like a meal on the table and there was like a half-eaten meal and then the crew like disappeared and all of that has been they found out that that was all bs it was basically added to the story to make people more fascinated of you know what could Mm -hmm. make you abandon ship overnight and there's the same with the stories of the flannan lighthouse mystery in the Flannan Isles where these three lighthouse keepers went missing. And again, somebody went and added into the story that there was food on the table when the investigators got there to check it out, which again is a blatant lie, but it was just to sell books at the time. But yeah, there just seems to be something. I mean, from a young age, my mom told me several stories of coming across like abandoned cabins and that when they would go hunting in the Pacific Northwest. And one was about like finding an old calendar on the wall and, like finding newspapers in there. And again, from a young age, it always fascinated me. So uh, that look again, it's, it sounds like a a really interesting place and folks um, I'll make sure that there's a link to follow Nate on Instagram because he does post some amazing photos of some of these places that he goes to. And uh, that's why that sounded so familiar because you were just, we were just talking about it yesterday. I think that that's where you got to go (laughs) to this ghost town. So look, man, that, that, that is amazing. But folks, just to give you a rough rundown on what I'd heard about these mushrooms, it's like you, you, I, there are stories floating out there that there's everything from a copy of the Declaration of Independence to like JFK's um, remains. It's one of those things like think of kind of like Area 51 or what was that? Um, I think it's like Warehouse 11 or whatever from uh, Indiana Jones where they go to take the Ark of the Covenant. It's one of those kind of legends that there's all kinds of things stored there um i'd even heard like purportedly that they store alien bodies there which again if you were the government and you had alien bodies why would you store it at a private company's site that makes no sense you would store it at area (laughs) 51 or or uh wright patterson but again it's just one of those things where i think there's something about underground there's something about those tunnels and that and especially once people people's imagination start running wild because they don't know what's stored there it gets a bit carried away but that's the gist of the story folks if you are wondering and like i said i couldn't find a whole lot about it now the next one is one of the most famous ones in again in the pittsburgh area nate and i know you will know all about this so i'll try and keep it brief and this is about campbell's run road which is more commonly known as 13 bends in the pittsburgh area So just on the outskirts of Pittsburgh lies Campbell's Run Road, which more commonly goes by the name 13 Bends. It's an unpaved dead-end road that contains, you guessed it, 13 bends. The road is believed to have a disappearing bend. So it's believed that if you drive one direction, there'll be 13, but if you drive back, there'll only be 12 bends in the road. There are three main legends around this road. The first one is the Orphanage. And that story is that the 13 bends have existed as long as records go back. Now, that's a fact that this road has been there, although it was a trail, obviously, at one time. So the records go back to at least 1780. The actual name of the road comes from the creek that runs alongside the road, which is Campbell Run. 
Rumors state that back in the late 1800s, an orphanage existed deep in the woods, halfway down the road where the creek crosses under the road. On one frightful evening, one of the teenagers in the home was playing with matches on the front porch when he accidentally lit the house ablaze. Many of the young children were stuck inside the home as the fire grew and took their life. Others caught on fire and ran into the creek to put them out, only later to fall victim to the effects of the burns. Those who travel the road at night claim to hear the voices of the children screaming, bells clanging, and splashing in the creek. As urban legends state, you must go down the road until you hit the first bridge. Before crossing, put baby powder on your car. Continue driving for some time, and then check that baby powder. Many claim to find small handprints believed to be those of young children who passed on. Some say to try something different for it to work. You must park the car on the bridge with your headlights off and call out to the kids in the woods. The second myth is about the school. Further near the dead end of the road, there was an old school, once used as a Catholic school for young girls. Rumors started that one day in the early 1900s, a young man arrived at the school and stabbed 13 girls to death. 13 girls, 13 bends. So you can kind of see the correlation here, folks. He then went and buried each of the girls, one at each bend in the road. That's a lot of work. Rumor states that if you flash <laughs> your high beams on each corner while traveling down the road, Upon your return, a ghostly girl will be waiting at each bend. The last one is, ironically enough, about the mine shaft. So somewhere along the road, deeper in the woods, was said to exist a mine shaft used to obtain minerals, as Pittsburgh was and is a large industrial city. In the early 1900s, a cave-in at the mine led to the death of three of the miners. The mine was closed and never reopened. There is a trail along the road leading to the abandoned mine. Those who travel the trail during the day will run into three miners who, upon being seen, will disappear. Other tall tales of the road Other tall tales of the road are the hit uh oh sorry, I've crossed myself up here. Okay, I know what I've done, sorry. Other tales of the road talk about ghost cars that chase people, believed to be the spirits of teenagers who had an accident on the road. Others see orbs in the woods moving in and out of the trees. We may never truly know how many spirits lie under the road. So that's that's it on that one, uh, Nate. If there's anything about 13 Bends Road that you've got. Yeah, so this is one that I've been planning to get to. I just kind of, whenever I do my Instagram, I think of what can I take a picture of? Like right. what's going to be interesting? And when it comes to a bendy road, there's not much <laughs> yeah. unless I see a ghost pop up. But, you yeah. know. So the chances are slim, but it's a, one of those tales that just is, is embedded in the Pittsburgh history. And you talk about the Camel's Run Road, which is one of the main locations, but that this tale actually has several locations that it could be. Right. Which is, is interesting because there's not one location that everyone says this is definitely 13 bends. Okay. Um, there's, there's also a website that claims that it could be in southwestern Pennsylvania, which is south of Pittsburgh. Um, and this is in the, the Coulter and Aspill location. And this one actually states that there was indeed an orphanage for boys that was situated in Alpsville at the far end of town, adjacent to St. Patrick's Church and Cemetery. The orphanage has long since been torn down and the church was closed. The church and cemetery are still there. Um, along with the foundational remnants of the orphanage. Okay. Now, the orphanage didn't burn down in a tragic fashion. It was just removed due to it becoming obsolete. 
So this is another location that people say, you know, ghost children, obviously, with the orphanage are supposed to come up and, and touch your car um, just for for um, inf informative purposes. Other locations that are rumored to be 13 Bends are Elizabeth, PA, Boston, PA, White Oak, PA, McKeesport, PA. Um, actually, you were talking about the, the Yo River with Dead Men's Hollow. It actually says that this could be a road along the, the Yo River as well. <laughs> Um, so it's it's one of those legends, I think, that kind of was made up and passed down right. through time. And there definitely were orphanages and um, industry mines and things like that, that I think everyone just kind of thought of these locations as 13 Bend. So I'm going to make it to one of them. Maybe this one that still has the, the cemetery that might be interesting. Yeah. And I, I guess it's one of those where there's so many and so close together, like you say, because it's it's a fairly tight geographic area. I could definitely see maybe there was a story of this road and then it just got rolled into one of the others and they all mm -hmm. kind of, yeah. So, so that, that absolutely makes sense. And I've seen that with a few of the others as well. Um, especially when I did the Illinois stuff, there were some stories about this graveyard and then they were later attributed to another graveyard. It was almost like if this isn't scary enough, then this happened here too, and this happened here. It's almost like it was like roll it all together to kind of get people to go to our graveyard because our graveyard's scarier, you know. So it is it is quite interesting that um, there are so many though in that same area uh, that go by that thirteen Ben's name. So, exactly. Um, I'm not sure yeah. if that's something that the rest of the country or like if if this is a, a a local legend only or if this is something that happens across America. I'm not sure. I would say if I looked into it, if I had to just take a punt, I would say there are probably others uh, because it's kind of like, what's that? The seven gates of hell. There's like yep. all over. I mean, there was one purportedly in Illinois and uh, I only knew when I went back and I did the research and I was like, hang on. Uh, we lived there for like a couple of years and I've been up and down that road and I didn't see any seven gates of hell or like, you know, spectral hunters <laughs> or but um, but I did find it interesting that even there, in a place I knew really well, I didn't know that story. Uh, and it was only in doing the research that I found out. And there are a few others here. I mean, there's the, um, uh, like I said, the Dead Man's Hollow. There's definitely, there's another one in Ohio named that. And Okay. Uh, yeah, and they thought that there might have been that body that was supposedly found in like 1870 or whatever. There was a, they, they found a newspaper article in Ohio from that time, so... Again, they were like, well, maybe that was kind of a tall tale that they said it happened here and not in Ohio. But yeah, there are several of these kind of stories that, like you say, um, it does seem there seems to be a bit of a bleed over. And uh, even like I say, that that uh, Shades of Death Road, there's another one in New Jersey, amazingly enough, like another. OK. Yeah. Another place called Shades of Death. So the next one we've got here, folks, is a fun one all to me because it's there's there's no harm in this story. And this is the ghost of Amanda Balfe, which is from the Bain Memorial Library, which is in, in the Pittsburgh area. And this library was uh, established in 1927, and it was dedicated to Andrew Bain, who was a politician. And he was elected in 1838, and he lived in the area with his two daughters. Now, uh, his daughter, Amanda, was born in 1840, and she owned uh, the property after her parents passed away, her and her sister. Now, upon her marriage in 1870, she gave, uh, uh, sorry, upon her marriage in 1870, her dad gave his daughter some of the land upon which she grew up to build her home. 
Her husband, which was James Madison Balfe, was an architect, and he designed and built their dream home. The couple moved into the refined three-story Victorian mansion in 1875. Now, her father died in 1899, or sorry, no, this was her husband, uh, James. He died in 1899, and she was left alone in the home for the remainder of her life. She lived a quiet life, enjoying her book collection and the lovely property with its host of elm trees. Now, that is important, folks. She was a big lover of elm trees. When she died in 1912, Mrs. Belf deeded over her home and the acreage surrounding it to the borough of Bellevue. The transfer took place with four stipulations. The four-acre plot would not be developed. Her home would be used as a public library. The streets bounding the property would be renamed Balf and Tees, and the elm trees on the property would not be removed. The borough has honored Mrs. Balf's request with one exception. They were not able to save the elm trees. So after she passed away, throughout the last century, uh, the Dutch elm disease came in, and it ended up mm-hmm. killing these trees. The last surviving tree, known as the Lone Sentinel, was removed in 1998 when it was determined that it too could not be saved. Now, many of the reports say that after that tree was removed, her ghost became more and more active in the library. Now, despite her restlessness about the trees, she is she is stated to be a friendly, mischievous spirit. She enjoys turning on lights, playing with computers and equipment, and hiding books, keys, and other items. Staff often hear her footsteps as she walks around the second floor, and neighbors report seeing a woman looking out of the windows of Mrs. Bell's former bedroom. Now, this is one of my favorite stories here, which is that Sharon Helfrich, a former director of the library, recounts a time that a new DVD player stopped working while 100 people were waiting to watch a film outside in the park. She then noticed that a light was on upstairs in the attic. She went up to turn out the light and pled and, and pleaded with Mrs. Balf to make the DVD player work again. In exchange, she went and scolded the ghost for turning on the light. Now, apparently that bargain worked, because when she returned to the movie, the DVD player was working normally. She has been positively identified by the library staff and visitors who have seen her because she looks just like her picture, which is hanging on the wall. One librarian told Jeff Ballinger that she saw her in a reflection of a window. Jeff also reports that people pulling into the parking lot know when the library is closed, when they see a lady wearing a bonnet looking out of the second-story window of what was her room. During children's story time, the ceiling fan is turned on by unseen hands. Staff interpret this as a sign that she enjoys children being there. Strange numbers have also appeared on computers, entered by unseen hands. Oddly, there are no ghost stories about her older brother, who was Congressman Thomas Byrne, which is uh, you would expect because he committed suicide, and uh, he shot himself while in Washington, D.C., and his body was later held in the house before the funeral, so... What they're saying is you would expect much more of a story around that with his suicide, but fascinating little story, and I, I like the mischievous ghost, Nate. I like those much more than the malicious ones, so uh, do you know anything much about the uh, the Bain Memorial Library? Yeah, so this one actually hits close to home, literally, because I live in Bellevue. Um, <laughs> right now, that's where I'm sitting. And the funny thing is, maybe it's because I don't go to libraries. I'm not uneducated, but I just haven't been to a library for a long time. But I'd never heard of this living in the town of Bellevue. And I didn't even hear about it until I was reading a book about Pittsburgh hauntings. And I I went over, looked at the page in this image of 
this library that I drive past and walk past every day came up and I was like, oh my gosh. So anyway, Bellevue is a, a beautiful little town. It's a suburb about five minutes north of Pittsburgh, so we can get downtown very easily, but it has that suburb feel and there's still a lot of trees and uh, parks and, and the library is actually situated in a public park right now. So that's okay. where she lived. That was her land. Um, and the elms are gone, but there's other trees there. And I think it's just so interesting because not all ghosts are evil. <laughs> yeah. Like this, this says, like some are just mischievous and some want to know what's happening. You know, she lived in a, a time period before computers yeah. even existed. So I could see like this mischievous Victorian lady that wanted her house to become a library. She's like, all right, this is great. This is a library. This is my home. And then she sees these computers. She's like, what is this? So she wants to mess with it. I could totally see that happening. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because I walked in, I walked in the library just to, excuse me, losing my voice a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I walked no, into I the should. library just to kind of check out the area, take a picture and, and actually talk to the librarian that was there. And this picture of, um, her is, is right on like when you walk in the library and turn to the left where the the librarian is the picture of her is right above the fireplace of amanda belf that you'll see if you look up this story so she's a very kind looking lady but they still have her picture there and they know it's haunted like i asked um not even expecting her to know about it i was like you know i came in to learn about the haunting she's like oh yeah there's so much about it <laughs> she's like you need to look it up online she's like i can't even tell you all about it but she let me walk because of COVID right now, you yeah. can't really like go and sit places, but yeah. she let me walk around and take pictures. Um, I didn't feel anything and I didn't experience anything, but I definitely walked around the building a few times looking up into the windows to see if I could catch anything. And sometimes you don't always catch, you know, you don't see a ghost, but yeah. sometimes if you're looking back at your images, you'll see something um, like a shadow or something in the, the windows. I didn't see anything, but I have had that happen to me um, at the at the West Virginia, West Virginia penitentiary that, that happened when I was looking back on photos. So it's something I always recommend is if you're going to a, a supposedly haunted location, take lots of pictures and then make sure to look back on them. Yeah. That's, that's something that I personally, I need to do a better job of. I, I've lived in a lot of, um, I've lived in a lot of places that I, I knew were haunted or occupied, however you want to term it, because I don't necessarily know the one I'm personally convinced it was a ghost. It was a man I knew in life. And, you know, I've had people tell me, oh, familiar spirit or whatever. But me personally, I'm sold of who it was because he always responded to me when I talked to him and that. But Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And I, I covered that over on my Halloween ep episode. But I lived in this house with him for about three years. And basically the uh, the real brief synopsis of it was it was the mayor of the small town that I lived in and his wife passed away and they were married over 50 years and he basically died of broken heart syndrome and his family didn't want to move there and take over the house. So of course my family being who they were, we bought the house and, um, uh, I, I <laughs> but I lived with him. I lived upstairs and I never really had any issues. I would hear him talk, uh, walking around. Um, it was one of those, uh, really weird ones where we, we had a room. So I had a very large upstairs room. And then there was another smaller bedroom and we kept that door locked. It, it had a skeleton key and the door oh, wow. would unlock itself. Um, I'd walk into the room and the windows were open and we had those very old heavy wooden windows. So mm. I could understand them falling 
but I couldn't understand them managing to lift themselves and latch into place. And, uh, yeah, it was just one of those things. I, I had no doubt that I lived with him and it was one of those, I don't know how everyone else is, but me personally, if I'm in a house and I'm by myself, I have a certain feeling. If I know someone else is in the house, even now, like I know, even though I'm very far removed from her, um, I know my partner and her dad are here because I've just got this certain vibe. Um, and I've always had that feeling. Well, I never felt alone in that house, even when my parents were gone and I knew I, I, I always had the feeling that someone was there. And, but the moral of the story is, uh, you know, the crux of it is that I've lived in several haunted locations, but I never took photos because at that time we didn't have digital cameras and that it was still mm -hmm. the film cameras. And then secondly, it was like, we, uh, we didn't have the money to just, I never, what I'm saying is I never thought of just taking photos for photos sake. I wish I would have now. Um, and I'm one of those people that I don't necessarily see or i haven't seen like full-blown apparitions in front of me but i right. see things out of the corner of my peripheral vision and i'll i'll just see something fleetingly but at the same time i get that empathic type feeling and i get the i'll get the goosebumps or i'll feel the cold chills in that and so i've i've learned to pay attention to that um and nowadays i would probably just start firing off pictures with the phone like you say so uh yeah it is, it is very interesting I just always treated it kind of matter-of-factly because to me, I had no doubt that there was something there and I didn't necessarily think that these entities that I interacted with were evil because I didn't get that feeling. But I did sometimes get that kind of heebie-jeebie feeling like there's something else here. Not necessarily like someone's that it's watching good or, you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not that it's necessarily one or the other, good or bad, but there is something else here. And um, I haven't told a lot of the stories about California because I was saving them for halloween but um i lived in an old boarding house that was all wood construction and built in the kind of late 1800s and it was basically a boarding house it was all these kind of older guys that rented rooms and more than once man you'd have your uh hall room door open because uh, again this house the, this house was built back when you didn't have a lot of windows in that so it got very hot and stuffy so you'd open, you'd have your door open, and you'd, you'd watch someone walk past, or you would catch motion, somebody walking past, and then you'd go to the end of the hall, and there's nowhere for them to go, and it wasn't your neighbors because they hadn't come home and unlocked the door. So something passed, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I, I just got kind of used to blocking it out, I guess. But um, yeah, lots of interesting stories there, I'll tell you. Yeah, that's amazing that you had those experiences. So, you know, like you said, they're not all evil. And there's, I think ghosts are just kind of a, a manis manifestation of energy that's left behind by by spirit. Like your body is propelled and, and moved by by electricity, like in your body, yeah. like movement. So that, you know, maybe those forces stick around if your business isn't quite finished here on Earth. Well, that that's it. I mean, you don't have to dig deep into philosophy or religion to believe this stuff i mean albert einstein believed in ghosts as far as that he believed that you cannot destroy energy you know it can only be transmuted and so albert einstein felt that once we leave this realm that energy must go somewhere so right yeah so in a very basic that's what i always laugh when you've got some of these people who are just like hardcore not even skeptics like i say but to me they're debunkers because they just don't want any bar of it and it's like well, where does the energy go then? You know, because even people like Einstein and several others 
uh, believed it. Now then, of course, you got guys like Hawkins who just basically said, it's us telling ourselves stories so that we don't fear the end of it all. But there are a lot of really well-known, world-famous scientists that believe that there must be something beyond this realm. Because again, where does that energy go, like you say? And um, yeah, I mean, I, I had a few things happen in that place. And, and I'll make sure when I get around to telling those stories that I'll make sure to let you know. But I'll tell you what, it to this day, if I was ever back there, I would go and check out this place because it was a really interesting place. And I don't know what was there before this boarding house, but I can tell you from an emotional state, there was a lot of energy there because you had a lot of kind of middle-aged guys who were either just, they'd never got their lives together, you know, like they were never big successes or a lot of guys who were divorced went through broken relationships and that. And just from the guys that I knew who were alive, I mean, you could feel that energy of kind of down in the dumps, melancholy type energy. So, and I know that there were guys who passed away there. So I'm sure there was um, stuff going on there that you know, one part of me is glad maybe I didn't know all of the stories, to, <laughs> to, to be honest. But yeah, um, what we'll do, Nate, because again, um, I know your voice is probably uh, taking a bit of a battering. We'll do one more. And then what okay. we can do is we can always have you back again, or um, I can, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it off the air. And if, if you can't make it back again, I fully understand. And I can just, um, I can just finish up the rest myself. But um, it just goes to show how in depth these are because you can't just kind of bam, 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 go through them in five minutes. I mean, you probably could, but this is why I love doing the program the way I do it because we try and go in depth a bit. Yeah, I think it's, it's good to relate you know, make, make the stories relatable to, to everyday life. You know, we've all, all had those experiences and the paranormal is, is something that's really interesting. Oh yeah. And, uh, and this one is a really interesting one and there might be a little bit of a different spin here, even that you hadn't heard about it. Um, maybe, maybe not, maybe I'll say it and you'll go, no, no, I heard that story, but it's one of those where as I was doing the research for it, I found this very, personal story about it and i was like that's really cool so i want to include that and this is the story about hatchet jack in peters township which is in washington county which is again it's in the southwestern part of the state so it's fairly close to uh to your area and i'm sure you've at least heard of hatchet jack and uh so this one goes that in peters township near a small area called cannonsburg uh, on a road called Han drive there was rumored to be a murder Neighbors and classmates always chatted about the legend of Hatchet Jack. The story goes like this. There was once a man who lived on Han Drive at a beautiful estate with his father and mother, who was sadly dying of cancer. In his mother's last days, her sister moved in to help care for her. Upon her death, his aunt stayed there with his father. One day, as Hatchet Jack returned from a day of work, he asked his aunt for a glass of orange juice. She responded sharply and said she was way too old for her to be waiting on him, which prompted his father to get involved. He told Hatchet Jack to pack up his things and be ready to move out in 30 days. Infuriated by his father's word, he went upstairs to fetch his 20-gauge shotgun. Hatchet Jack came back downstairs, shot them both in the head, unloaded the rest on his father, and dragged their bodies to the basement. There, he used a chainsaw, ironically enough a chainsaw, not a hatchet, to brutally cut their bodies into pieces. Hatchet Jack collected what was left of their disembodied bodies into 12 garbage bags and buried them in the orchard. Now here's where it gets interesting because this is the story that I found online. 
Now, first off, folks, this actually happened as far as the murders. That did happen. My father works for the State Department of Environment Protection and has for quite some time. In his late 20s, he was working in Philly when they hired a man named Sherman Richardson. They got to talking and discovered they had grown up in the same area and went to the same high school. Sherm, as my father came to call him, had grown up in Cannonsburg on Hahn Drive. Because they lived within 15 minutes of each other, Sherm and my dad would occasionally share rides back to Pittsburgh. Eventually, it came time for my father to move back to Pittsburgh and work there, after my parents' wedding. In the last weeks before he made his move, he made a couple trips across Pennsylvania, one with Sherm. Weeks before, my father had mentioned to Sherman that he was looking for a place to live in with my mom, aunt, and uncle, and he had suggested my father live in the old house on Hahn Drive that his sister now rents out. It was a beautiful property, and of course my dad loved the idea. After corresponding with Sherm's sister, he found that the address and house perfectly fit the description of Hatchet Jack's haunted house. This remained in the back of my dad's mind. However, he figured he would rent it regardless. Hatchet Jack must have been an old renter gone crazy. So on the car ride, he asks, So Sherm, whatever happened back there at that house? Didn't some kid go berserk and kill his relatives? Having always been pretty quiet, Sherman didn't say much in response. He kind of mumbled something and looked away. My dad continued, Some crazy renters, huh? Sherm agreed. Well, I sure hope that guy doesn't turn up while I'm renting there. It's a good thing I've got some guns of my own. Not afraid to use them if I've got to. Don't need some nutcase showing up at my door. They drove the rest of the way back to Pittsburgh, and Sherm showed him the property, driving up the long driveway and locking the gate behind him. They walked around the house and the orchard, and my dad told Sherm he would definitely be in touch with his sister. Meanwhile, my dad had requested that my aunt check around the town and find out Hatchet Jack's real name. Later that week, they were together, and he asked, Cindy, did you ever find out who committed those murders? She responded, yeah, I think his name was uh, Sherman Richardson. Everything my father had said and done with Sherm came flooding back to him, everything from the many moments they spent alone to the threats he had made in the car. Naturally, when my mom and aunt found out, they refused to rent the house. My father called Sherman's sister and made a deal. He got the rent lowered and promised to do some work around the place and asked for the number of Sherman's parole officer. They rented the house for a couple of months until Sherman wanted to move home. He even suggested that they simply become his roommates, rather than forcing him to move out. But my parents figured it was best to move out. My uncles hunt on Sherman's property to this day. When my father called the parole officer, he discovered that Sherman was a model prisoner, got out early on good behavior, and hasn't been a problem since. Maybe he, was a psycho he had a psychotic break or just snapped under a lifetime of abuse, but he returned to a normal life after prison. He got work, married, and died years later of a heart attack while fishing. So that's a fascinating little story, ain't it? That's, yeah, that's that's crazy. That's one that I haven't actually visited yet. I was actually looking at the website. I've heard about it. Is the house still standing, do you know? My understanding is, is I didn't really, because a lot of times for this, what I do is I'll, I'll do my kind of draft and I'll record the episode, and it's only when I go back later to find photos for those audiograms that I'll actually start looking for photos, unless it's something, like, really specific, and I'm like, I want to see this. But generally, I find out much more about the story. But my understanding was that, yeah, that house is still standing. Oh, you know what? I was, I'm just reading the comments, and um, it looks like it was burned oh, in man. 2019 oh. by the local fire department. Oh, um, dear. 
yeah, it was sitting that it was a biggest, a, a house, basically a rundown house that they rented out, but, um, all of that happened and it was just on a beautiful big estate. Um, it said that one of the commenters, Bob, stated, I was at the house the day it burned for training. Oh, they were oh. training the local fire department. Someone has a picture of flames coming out of a second story window that looks like a person is screaming. That's, that's wow. chilling right it there. Is. And I guess it just goes to some of the other stories you'll hear about these kind of quote unquote haunted or famous properties. Sometimes they just want to destroy them because, again, like we've talked about, they just get so many people turning up wanting to see things and people are just trying to live their life. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess the thing about that story that I read at the end that I found online, and I can't remember where I found it, but I always save the links to wherever I get the information from. So it'll be like, there'll only be two or three links uh, to where this was. But um, I guess it just goes to show that I guess the, the real thing about this is many of these stories. Yes. Don't get me wrong. I, I've always believed there are basically three crimes that once you've committed, you can never go back, right? Um, if you rape someone, you can never take that back. If you uh, harm children, you know, molest children, mm -hmm. you can never walk that back. And once you've taken a life, you can never walk it back. But I guess it just goes to show again that behind each one of these stories, there's actually a a real human being, you know, that's behind it. It's not just made up for a movie. And I sent you that uh, photo of the actual article of in the newspaper and that was the article of this actual murder that he did kill his dad mm -hmm. and his aunt you know now the story and the orange juice and all that who knows but this the murders actually did happen and later on when i get into some later ones in here there's one that you know it's one of the best ones and i saved it for very last and uh, i won't even say the name of it on the air because i want to save that as a hook for the uh, listeners but again, it's a real life story of a man who was kind of mythologized in the Pittsburgh area. And I'm sure you kind of know because he used to walk around. That one's a lot great. At night. Yep. 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 Exactly. <laughs> and again, that is the whole thing about that story is at the end of it. It's it's a real human's life here that's being kind of toyed with by others. And um, yeah, it's it's just like, I mean, you look at things like the Elephant Man and various other things throughout history it's not just an urban legend. It's not just a story. Oftentimes it's about these people who maybe had a very difficult life or, or had some really challenging things happen. And yet they found a way to kind of go through and just deal with the hand that they were dealt in life. And again, like this one, uh, if, if this story is true about this guy, um, he, well, you know, definitely they know that he lived to be into his seventies and he had a heart attack. He got married and he, he was probably just trying to put this all behind him. And, uh, yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, where I'm originally from in the Northwest, unfortunately, one of the caveats we had in Idaho was one of the things that we had connected to us was the Aryan Nations. And there was a, this happened after I left, and I didn't even know about it until about 10 years ago, because it was always one of those, I wonder what happened. And there was a compound up there that we all knew about where these guys hung out. And somebody broke down on the road and the car misfired and so the quote-unquote security guards which were just some morons with guns shot this car up and killed uh the person that was in the car well the the mother or father of the person who was killed sued the Aryan nations basically to get their hands on that compound he didn't want the money he basically tore it down and made it into a peace park 
which I thought was just an awesome ending to the story. He basically bankrupted these, you know, I trying to think of the appropriate word, but there's really no appropriate word for what these people are, but they basically bankrupted them. And I just love the fact that he took their land away and made it into a peace park at the end of it all, tore down the buildings and said, Nope, it's going to be a peace park in my child's memory. Um, you're never going to go back there again. And, uh, yeah, it just goes again. And I know it's an overused trope, but to me, I do believe that at the end of the day, sooner or later, these evil people do get what's coming to them. And, uh, but at the other hand, I mean, I do believe that people can rehabilitate. It's just that you can never wash away blood, basically, at the end of the day. Right. I think, you know, it might be worth a, a drive down Han Drive if, for <laughs> any paranormal investigators out there. Maybe you'll get to talk to Hatchet Jack down there. Well, um, well, look, man, that the one about um uh, at the Bain Memorial Library, it's just like that one. We always talk about attachment and spirits being attached to different places. If ever there was a place that you're gonna be attached to, she literally lived was, she might have been born in the hospital, but she basically lived in that property her whole life. First, it was mm-hmm. her dad's, and then her and her husband built their dream house there. And uh, so I just think about story like that. It doesn't always have to be like a, a short, sharp, tragic uh, existence. It can be just you live there, you you, you love the place that uh, you were at, and you don't want to leave, you know? Um, it's where you feel comfortable. And again, like you were saying, she's just had a bit of fun. So, yeah, man, it's just like it's crazy how many of these stories we've got, and we're only about halfway through all of this. So. <laughs> So, two so, hour, two and a half hours later, yeah. Yeah, man. And, and and like I say, honestly, if I wanted to, I could have gone a lot more in depth. Uh, but it's just there's always so much. So what we'll do, Nate, like I say, is I'll I'll let you go because um you've got to work in the morning. I don't. Um, I'm a man of <laughs> leisure. I'm I'm very fortunate. And like I say, we'll just uh, if you've got time and you want to come back and do another episode, it doesn't you know it doesn't have to be next week. We can do it in future. And if not, we can, uh, I, I can just read the rest myself, uh, one-on-one at a later point. So, well, we'll just, just keep me posted and we'll go from there, man. Sounds good. So are you going to like, will you post this as an episode or are you going to yeah. wait to put everything all together? Okay. No, I'll, I'll yeah. I'll be looking forward to, to getting this out there. Yeah. I'll post this as an episode and it'll actually be going up, um, on Wednesday. So in two days, um, and usually when I do a really good interview like this, I don't even bother with kind of the news segment and all that. It's just basically, here's a short intro. This is Nate and this is what he does and everything else and into it because I mean, a three hour episode is more than enough for, uh, for everyone. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'll have to carve out some time in their schedules, but yeah. I, I enjoyed myself. It was a lot of fun and we'll definitely get back online to talk about the rest of it. No, same. And, and Nate, I mean, you're a wealth of knowledge. You're also a, a you're a super supportive person. Like I say, that's why you're the state president for the Paranormal Sun for Pennsylvania. You've always got kind words to share about the show and the work that I do, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And, uh, yeah, but definitely this you can tell everyone this episode will be out um, on my normal release time on the 24th, and um, I'll send you a link to it as well as soon as it's up. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely share that out. All right. Thanks for that, man, and I'll let you go.